Warning! This show contains adult themes and language, including a flamethrower that you totally don't need to worry about. Disevidentia is an inability to reliably process evidence, and this is a podcast all about it. This episode was released on August 4th, 2021, and we are discussing Disevidentia because it is clear millions of climate change deniers are suffering from it. I am Mako. And I am Squeaky. We discuss logic and evidence because, since our last episode, we had an argument with someone about Miami not being three feet tall. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash disevidentia. If you spent all your oil money lobbying with congresspeople, like, subscribe, and leave a review to help us out. If you have a paper you have written or a small business you would like to see plugged here, let us know. Today, we are going to discuss part two of our conversation with the rock doctor, existing impacts of climate change, how a myth against climate change begins, and comet climate change myths. But first, I'm going on a rant. What happened on your end? The audacity just froze. I blame Windows, because my problem was I typed an R into our document instead of sending the R to audacity to record. Okay. Since the last episode, I have gotten into three discussions about COVID safety. One had merit. The other two were disevidential sufferers on the internet who had their posts deleted for spreading medical misinformation. Some will cry, censorship. I don't give a fuck. Liars don't have the right to kill people with confusion, the exact same way we don't have a right to shout fire in a crowded theater. Lies about COVID, lower vaccination rates, and increased deaths, just as starting needless panics in crowded theaters can cause stampedes and get people trampled. Freedom of speech isn't permission to kill people with speech. Fuck, even Mitch McConnell supports vaccination at this point and says so out loud. I was going to address the points these harmful disevidential sufferers made, but someone addressed them more eloquently than I was going to. They answered the standing call for papers with a simple but well-researched editorialization they wrote. Any paper, be it academic, well-researched editorial, or anything you have that relates to how we understand evidence as a species and as a society is welcome here. Please reach out to us at contact at disevidentia.com or r slash disevidentia on Reddit or at disevidentia on Twitter. These are all available at disevidentia.com. I will read the entirety of one by Jeremiah Stanninger with written permission and all of their copyrights reserved by him. That will be every word after this sentence. Until we get to the next guitar riff, then we get to part two of our conversation with the rock doctor. One by Jeremiah Stanninger. One. One is the amount of people I saw today that were wearing masks at my local Walmart. This number excludes myself and includes all Walmart staff that I saw. The other person was my father. One. That is the amount of rodent hindquarters that I have left to give. With COVID cases on the rise, especially cases of the Delta variant, the time to pretend nothing is happening is not now. 1. That is the approximate percentage of COVID-19 deaths amongst vaccinated individuals. 99% are unvaccinated. 1. 1 is how many lives we have. 1 is usually the amount of chances we have. People are desperate for a second when it's too late. What's worse is that they easily could have prevented it. There are still millions of Americans refusing to protect others and themselves by getting vaccinated. COVID-19 vaccinations are written off by many as being experimental. And even if that were true in the beginning, it wasn't. There have been well over 300 million doses given in the U.S. alone. 
the amount of people getting a severe reaction is around 0.0003%. The disevidentia is widespread, and the irrational fear of a well-tested and safe vaccine, as well as precautions against a deadly pandemic that has killed millions around the globe, is dangerous. COVID-19 is currently wreaking havoc on southern states such as Texas, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. No surprise these states rank among the lowest in the country in vaccination rates. The Delta variant is worse in every way. I believe that we could see numbers reach the heights seen last year if these trends continue. The worst part about all of this is the blatant refusal to understand evidence that is plain to see. Some of those who lean to the right on the political spectrum may feel they are harboring loyalty to former President Donald Trump. Their actions would be misplaced as he encouraged people to get vaccinated. What is stopping unvaccinated people from taking safe precautions to protect themselves and their family? Here are three common reasons. The vaccine is untested. In reality, 4 billion doses have been administered, with there only being a few thousand severe reactions. It is shown to be very safe. The vaccine is worse than getting the virus. Your odds of dying from the vaccine are much, much lower. 99.9% of those who contract COVID-19 don't die. By my calculations, 2.13% of people die. This is much higher than 0.1%. To put that into perspective, 2.13% of the world's population is well over 150 million people. As the saying goes, hindsight is 2020 vision. Get vaccinated before it's too late. If you're not going to get vaccinated, at least protect others by wearing a mask and practicing social distancing. Remember, you and your loved ones have only one life. We discussed things. Indeed, we do discuss many things here. Sorry, listener, if we sound distracted, but we're about to make a whole bunch more in the way of outtakes because our dog farted. <laughs> Last episode, we listened to part one of our interview with the Rock Doctor, mm -hmm. and we had a few corrections to make, and we have a few corrections to make this episode as well. Let's just go through them real quick. I said that, uh, I got into arguments with a guy, Kazito Mukembe. His name is actually Kazito Moyembe. I tried. I'm yeah. sorry. Well, I mean, that's that's a decent effort, I think. Yeah. His arguments are still very wrong, and he still says lots of really bad things. Mm -hmm. All right. I called it the recumbent laryngeal nerve. That nerve that in all mammals runs from our brain down by our larynx, then up to our mouths, I believe, or tongue or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to claim to know what it actually connects to, because then I'll have to issue another correction. <laughs> You could look it up before making the claim. Never mind. No, it's just, just it's not the recumbent laryngeal nerve. The nerve does not lay down backwards on a bicycle. Okay, it's the recurrent. Recurrent. It, yeah, because it it follows it, it it follows a path that has to backtrack on itself, so it recurs. Okay. Yeah. We know a few things about recursion. Yeah, just look up recursion in the dictionary. Yes. Anyway, uh, you were concerned about the pronunciation of Baju. Uh, yes, I was quite confident that I was going to butcher the pronunciation at the time. Because it seems like exactly the type of thing that I would accidentally butcher. You weren't super far off. Oh, good. We just listened to it on MSS on YouTube. So it is pronounced Bajo. All this YouTube channel does is pronounce things. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> I wonder if Emma cares. Probably not, but she has my thanks anyway. Sliding on from uh, corrections, one of our listeners gave us a, uh, a number of books that we'd be interested in. And I've started reading a couple of these, and I'm familiar with uh, uh, the other. But there's a uh, Conspiracies Declassified, The Skeptoid Guide to the Truth Behind the Theories. This was written by Skeptoid, a very popular skeptic podcast. 
and one of our listeners recommends this. There's Outbreak, A Crisis of Faith, How Religion Ruined Our Global Pandemic. This is by No Illusions, another popular podcaster, and it's about how uh, religion really fucked up this pandemic. And I've read about the first half, and then I put it down because there's so many books. But it is really good, and I'm going to go back and finish it. And then finally is a children's book. Uh, my name is Stardust. Uh, one of the authors is Richard Dawkins, which we mentioned last episode, and there's another author is Douglas Harris. But this uh, book, again, comes with the endorsement of another one of our listeners, so please check them out. Was there any other corrections we wanted to cover now before we dive into the Rock Doctor Part 2? The Citrate correction? Oh, we need a correction for my corrections. I claimed that the E. coli evolved to eat metal. I misunderstood one of our sources, and it actually evolved to eat a compound in the solution called citrate. That's something citrate. But uh, this compound allows the microbes to bond to various metals. So they were closely together, and I thought it was eating the metals directly. No, it started eating a chemical that lets it eat metals, and usually calcium. So even then, it wouldn't be your jewelry. It would be your skeleton the E. coli was eating. Oh, so much better. Well, you get to keep the diamond ring. You just don't get the hand. And you get that spooky skeleton out of you. Do you need a computer? Go to abk-customs.com, abk-kustomz.com, to speak to an expert to get the computer you need. I know one of the builders over there. He is knowledgeable and eager to please. Give them code EVIDENCE for a 10% discount on your next computer. We probably only have you for a limited time, so we should probably move on to the oil questions. Did you want to take point on asking Dr. Sean about uh, some of our oil questions? Okay, so we have a few questions regarding peak oil. Uh, can oil run out? Uh, could we, in theory, dig it all up? Yes, you could, very much in theory. So it's a, the philosophical argument is it's a, it's a finite substance, and if you keep taking it out of the ground, by definition, it has to run out. But it's, it may be true, but it's irrelevant because we cannot keep taking it out of the ground. Each successive barrel of oil is harder to get than the previous one. And so the last drops of oil would be so insanely difficult to obtain that the price would be the cost to get them out would be infinite. So the economist's point of view is we can never get to the end of the oil because the price only has to rise to the point where something else is better value or cheaper. And we will just switch to that. And that's what's happened with numerous sources of energy over historical time. And an example would be if uh, if oil became a million dollars a barrel, obviously solar panels would completely displace any demand for oil because no one's ever going to pay those prices. I think to the layman, I don't think they're really thinking about like actually exhausting all the oil. They're just imagining a day where oil does not have a place in their day-to-day lives. And yeah, from what you say, that will definitely be the case one day. I think so. I mean, uh, we'll penalize people for emitting carbon, I suspect, in the end. So (laughs) that will be another burden on anyone who is trying to use a carbon rich source of energy when you say people say we will always need it for plastics but you can make plastics by stitching together molecules that you've sucked out of the air in theory if you just have an infinite supply of energy you can just move molecules around and make whatever you want from nebraska i happen to know that we can make corn out of plastic and earlier when you said we will punish people releasing co2 do you mean hang on you just said corn out of plastic don't you mean the other way around plastic out of corn yeah that would make more sense that would do it I would hope so. I would hope it would make more sense. When you say we will punish people for releasing CO2, do you mean Europe and the UK will punish people? Because I'm not sure I America mean, ever will. governments all around the world. 
oh, I think America is the ultimate free enterprise country. And the best way to deal with a problem like carbon, I think, is probably with the free enterprise, which is you apply a tax to it and you influence people's choices. You leave it as a free choice. You just simply apply a skew to that choice. I believe the term we use for that is cap and trade. We create a cap of how much you can do and then then you you make shares of pollution that you can buy and sell amongst people is that that sort of the Which scheme you're we, thinking yeah and we we do it in the price of carbon so that we already have a a carbon price and i believe quite a lot of the world is already trading carbon as a as a permission to pollute commodity. I'm not sure how far it's got, but it seems to be um, gathering pace around the world. Yeah, California's doing it, but Texas isn't. So go figure. You've got to love the way America can do things state by state. Uh, do we? That's how we got rid of horrible things like slavery. <laughs> and capital punishment, which I thought would never go, but it's going state by state. Capital. I think the campaigners realized that was the only way they were ever going to make progress. Capital punishment is super complex on this topic because like California is, again, successfully getting rid of it for lots of states. Like here in Nebraska, we recently exhausted our supply of capital punishment drugs to the point where Governor Pete Ricketts went out and on his own dime bought like a single dose of the capital punishment drugs for like 10 or $12,000 from another state because California is shutting the companies down that make it. We just can't get the drugs. I thought that was a brilliant initiative to realize that these things are limited, have a very, very limited production around the world and just stop people making or selling it. It's oh, yeah. Genius. Just shame them on, on Twitter. Like these people. This but what gets me is it gets me that it's not actually very hard to kill a person, but they have for some reason picked a few ways of doing it and it must be administrative dif more difficult to bring in another way of doing it. That isn't stopping, I think, Mississippi. So we have this cruel and unusual clause for punishment in our Constitution. So we have to be careful yep. that how we execute people gets past that. And I think it's Mississippi. It might be Missouri. But they're creating a CO2 chamber where they strap you in into a chair in a small closet-sized room and they just fill the room with CO2 and you sort of pass out and go in to a sleep and never wake up. That would do it. I also understand America isn't short of opioids, and they are a well-known um, painless way to uh, end someone's life, but somehow that isn't being proposed either. Let's not encourage them. Let's not suggest good ways they could do it. I recently, I just, every time people bring up opioids, I, I go to this, but I believe uh, two episodes ago in episode uh, eight or nine, I was highlighting how rich a billionaire is, and I calculated, oh, yeah. we calculated on the podcast the maximum amount of fentanyl a person could take, and it turns out that if you just put a billion dollars in a normal investment account, the interest you make every year is so much money that you cannot exhaust it on fentanyl, a very expensive drug, and survive. If, if you decrease the amount of money you have, if, if, if you beat interest with your fentanyl, with your fentanyl habit, uh, you either die or get richer. That's a very obscure way of looking at wealth, but I like it. We were trying to find the price of cocaine because one of your billionaires, Richard Bronson, said a few years ago that it wouldn't be profitable to go into orbit if there were bags of pure cocaine in space. So even though cocaine's very expensive. Yeah. At the time, it was twenty thousand dollars a kilo. Yeah. So the idea is you'd go up there and harvest the cocaine bags. Yeah. And he's but it's still too expensive. Yep. And this was with regards to asteroid mining, because yeah. we've been talking about the economics. It's just easier to go find it somewhere on the ground, even if you have to dig a whole lot than it is to go get a rock in space right now. But that's changing. Yeah, I've, uh, I think that's probably a worth worthwhile podcast topic in itself because many of the proposed asteroid mining schemes 
would go from dragging back the asteroid made of something valuable, you know, a billion tons of titanium-rich ore, and you, you finally get it back to the Earth and you come up with the cunning way of dropping it in the middle of a desert somewhere without killing half the planet, <laughs> all of which is incredibly difficult, you know, finding a way of getting it to the ground without killing lots of people or risking their lives. And having got it to the ground, you immediately kill the market because you've just swamped it with vastly more than anyone needs. So the price plummets and now you're poor again. It's only uh, the business of governments, I think. There's no private enterprise way of making money out of these things. I think Russia would have something to say if you went and found a big titanium rock. They'd probably try to step in because uh, Russia's... Well, they wouldn't be very keen about losing losing their own markets. Yeah. But as I say, or to do it on the scale that might make money, you're going to kill the market as soon as it's brought to the Earth's surface. So this this might be... I think the best thing for asteroid mi mining is... is um, manufacturing in space. If you can put together a, a smelting plant in orbit, then you might be able to do something useful for making spaceships to leave Earth orbit. But bringing it down to the Earth is just too difficult. That sounds feasible. Having said that, but Musk will probably think up a way. I think there are good ways to drop tethers down and build space elevators, but that's probably a topic for another episode. Mm, lacking only the material that's strong enough. But we're getting there. We are getting there. <laughs> All right, so next question... Uh, what is the shortest amount of time that oil can form given the right conditions, both naturally and artificially? So that one I had to look up because it's not a standard question that I'd have ever heard from colleagues. But it turns out people have done experiments and found that if you heat a suitable source rock up, it starts giving off small amounts of oil very rapidly, a matter of uh, weeks, months, years. But um, and, and we've seen that on uh, uh, you take a very rich source rock naturally outcropping in uh, southern England, the Kimmeridge clay, and if you heat it up in a test tube, it will again give off what looks very much like um, crude oil. But it's almost the wrong question because rocks in the natural environment don't just get heated up instantly to several hundred degrees. What happens is they're deposited at the surface of the of uh, the seabed or on the land surface, usually the seabed, and then more rocks are deposited on top of them at a rate of few millimetres a century. And what we need is kilometres of burial to get the temperatures you need to cook these rocks. And it is a kind of cooking. It's a, like a chemistry set. You put them under enough pressure and raise their temperature up just by the net. As you push things deep into the ground, they get hotter. It's just the way the uh, Earth's um, underground temperature profile is. So the millions of years to that it, that it takes to form oil comes from the time it takes to bury rocks deep enough with sedimentation to get them hot enough to cook out the oil. Once the oil's out, it flows through reservoirs, sandstones and so on quite quickly to fill up traps. But the no one ever asked me before, uh, how long does it take to cook the source rock to make the oil? I'd always assumed it would be a, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years. But it doesn't really make too much difference to um, our models if it's instantaneous, because it still took you millions of years to get the rocks down to those depths and temperatures and pressures. But it was interesting. It was an interesting question. The question was mostly formed out of a curiosity if there is any way to just, I don't know, lab create oil to, to try to solve some of the scarcity problem. And I'm pretty sure I knew what the answer to that was, but seemed irrelevant to ask. Um, yes, if you're looking at it as a, uh, a surface process to create oil from nothing, I mean, straight away you're asking, where's your source of heat coming from to cook this stuff up? Because... If you're having to burn lots of energy in order to generate this um, synthetic oil, you've not really ended up 
better off than you started. You've burned lots of energy to get some energy. We are doing a similar thing with fracking. Fracking is effectively going to a shallow buried source rock that is um, internally expelling oil, but not into a reservoir that allows it to concentrate and get trapped. And we're just saying, okay, we will we will shortcut the, surf, the the process. We will hydraulically fracture the rock to create lots of internal uh, pathways, and then we will suck out the oil direct from the source rock. But you are using an already mature source rock. And then another one that they're doing is in Canada, the tar sands. So these are oils that got trapped and biodegraded in shallow reservoirs. So now they're horrible long chain molecules all stuck around sand grains, and they are literally digging it out with big uh, back hose and dumping it into big cookers and getting it hot enough so that they can separate with centrifuges the sand and the oil and it's very dirty in the sense of um, it destroys the landscape because you're just mining the, the material and then dumping the dirty sand back onto that strip mined surface it's dirty in the sense that it emits lots it wastes lots of energy in getting out a certain amount so they talk about barrels per barrel uh, none of these strike me as a, a viable solution in the long term you know, they're making it work for certain circumstances another company that i have worked for is sassel and they were making synthetic oil from coal and oxygen and hydrogen from water and and the atmosphere and that is basically a big chemistry set stitching molecules back together to make a synthetic oil again it works for certain circumstances but not really a global rival to um, naturally occurring crude oil it sounds like all of those are really energy intensive and they're following yes. that economic model you mentioned earlier where it gets more expensive and other energy sources might be cheaper and just take the you know cut this problem out at the knees. Yeah, you you look at the price of oil and as it rises up over $60 things like fracking become viable but again at at 60 you're barely making a dollar per barrel. Once you get to 100 you're making $40 a barrel if your cost is $60 a barrel. But then you compare that with the price of pulling oil out of Saudi Arabia's biggest oil field, Gawa, before it needed lots of heavy um, remedial work. And that was you know, a fraction of a cent per barrel back in the day. So we're watching the price of oil rise up and up and up. And of inevitably, other things start to be able to produce the same number of kilowatt hours for a lower price. So solar the manufacturing became cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And at some point, it crossed over the rising price of oil. So now we're looking at wind and solar are both perfectly viable um, alternatives as a commercial scale uh, energy production. Nuclear, if we came up with different models than the old fashioned nuclear power stations that we currently have, they can also be made cheaper for the same degree of safety. But there's you know, after a few accidents that are horribly polluting, uh, nobody's very interested in that anymore. Fission would be the game changer. So that's why, even though we've been let down over many decades and fission is still fusion. quite far away, I'd hesitate to say Do you mean fusion? the same distance far away. Uh, yes, I mean fusion. Sorry. Yeah, fusion's the one that's always 25 years in the future and has been for the past 50 years. Yeah, that, that was the classic schoolboy era. Fusion. No, I, I follow. Fission is, is, um, fission is the one that we've had running, but only with very primitive models. You know, we, we push lumps together, critical mass, lots of heat, boil water, turbine. Yeah, what's holding us up? But if we ever crack fusion. What's holding us up on this side of the pond? Because we've got several generations of reactor designs, and most of the ones we're running are like second and third gen. But we've got fifth and sixth generation designs that are way better, but it's rules and regulations. 
Like, everybody doesn't want this in their backyard, and we even here just shut down a nuclear power plant. It was uh, the Fort Calhoun nuclear power plant, and that was just north of Omaha. Uh, but one year we had terrible yeah. floods, and they surrounded it in sandbags, and we're like, you know what? If that had flooded, that would have been a disaster. Shut that down. We're using coal. Correction. I got the details about generations of nuclear power plants incorrect. Third generation reactors are quite new. I don't think that really impacted the, the discussion. The rest of the fact-checking didn't reveal any issues. See the show notes for details. Right, yeah, what we should be doing is shutting down and replacing on the same site with a more modern version of the same thing, with better safety built into the design. If this was, if you compared it with the development of cars or computers, these things would be the obvious way to run the Earth's energy supplies. And electrification would be far further on than we are now. Is nuclear making more headway in the UK? No, we are attempting to replace some of our failing aging reactors, but we've got an even bigger NIMBY problem because really we're an overcrowded little island. Really nobody wants this near them. So the only places they can build new ones is where they built the old ones. So when when you see the names of these things, they all have A, Bs and Cs in them because the A has been decommissioned, the B is coming to the end of its life and C is under construction. But having having got themselves a location where people have got used to there being a nuclear power station, that's the only place you can persuade anyone to let us put a new one. Yeah. But all the companies that signed up to build them keep going bankrupt. So the Japanese agreed to build one and then they backed out. And I think the I think the French were going to build us one and then they backed out because, as you say, the costs keep rising, the safety concerns keep forcing design changes. It's very difficult. But they are climate-wise, very clean source of energy. So, yeah, they're, they're always going to be an attractive baseload provider. <sighs> yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So then we've got other proposals to replace the uh, gas, gas domestic heating, because Britain, obviously, we're not worried about air conditioning, we're worried about heating through our damp, chilly winters. Mm. And the only thing that looks like being a viable alternative is um, ground source or air source heat pumps, where you multiply the energy you put in in the form of electricity you're effectively sucking heat out of the environment and concentrating it and bringing it indoors. And that can just about compete with something like gas if gas gets a bit more expensive. But it has a high installation cost if you're doing it as a retrofit. So everything comes with problems and difficulties. It certainly does. Uh, Okay, so... All sounding a bit gloomy here. (laughs) Well, it's just these problems are big. Yeah, they're big and complicated. I keep bringing people back to 100 million barrels of oil a day. Every single day we have to replace 100 million barrels of oil. That's like... People just forget the scale of it. That's like more batteries than you can buy at Costco. That's so much power. No, I... What is that, like 17 double A's? It's so much power. Oh, my God. I don't know. What, what are battery? I'm talking like the little batteries you put in your remote. What are they called over there? Uh, the double A's. still double A's? Okay. I, I figured they'd be different somehow. Yeah, I think. Uh, I believe it's a universal lettering. It, it, they haven't standardized the new lithium-ion ones, but yeah, triple A, double A. Yeah, okay. And then the big old lumpy ones, the A's and the D's that no one uses anymore. Oh, yeah. I've never seen an A. I'm sorry. Yeah, plain old A. Wikipedia. Wikipedia has the, uh, you know, as, as it has with everything, you can look up the sizes of all the things that, you know, we only have in historical memory now. But back in the day when portable meant a man could carry. I remember having, as a child, a portable television that was powered by, I want to say, six size C batteries. Okay. And C's the intermediate one. I think um, D was the big fat one. Yeah, ones. D was the big fat ones. One, 
one and a half volts each. Yeah. So how big was this television? Was it just like like the size of a roll of paper towels? About it was maybe half the size of this printer. Well, I mean, mm. the people, the listeners cannot see yeah. a printer. I, mean, well, I was going to say, how does that how does that help the listeners? <laughs> You've got a printer the size of a wardrobe? No, definitely not. It's no. two wardrobes. What? <laughs> it was really strong. That's why it was portable. No, uh, the the television was really small. I want to say it was like a like a nine inch screen or something like that. So it was like a couple of school. Uh, I remember when the portable TVs. Yeah, well, I remember when the portable TVs came out. They were pushing the limits of the power supplies. Yeah, it definitely did not get good battery life. And that was one of the reasons why I stopped using it was like I found myself replacing the batteries more than I cared to. I had a, a portable TV that I, I lusted after as a kid. I pictured it was something like out of Star Trek. You could you could be at school and you could look at the TV and you'd be the coolest kid. And then you I got one and it was the stupidest thing ever. You realize there's virtually nothing broadcast during the day. This is back in the days of three channels in, in the UK. And daytime TV was the worst TV there was. The only time you'd ever find anything worth watching was in the evening when you were at home and there was a proper television in the corner of the room. The whole purpose of a portable TV was gone at that point. <laughs> that's just a perfect symmetry. That's that's great. Uh, <laughs> they created the device before there was anything to watch on it, basically. I'm just staring. I'm using my phone as a fourth screen because I have three screens on my computer, but then I have notes on my phone and I've just left it on sitting here for the past, you know, however long hour we've been talking and it's not dimming it's not changing frequencies i get my email on it i'm like this is not a long time in the scale of development right it's 30 40 years is the time frame we're talking about and it's utterly astonishing to me you know all of this stuff is now on definitely on the scale of magic yeah and if we look back in our history i mean pick an important historical event the signing of the constitution or the magna carta friggin people leaving leif erickson discovering this continent and building the pyramids right and then go forward or backward in times from any of these events 40 years what really changed like nothing by comparison it's it's mind-bogglingly rapid advancement well they talk about the singularity where the rate of change is accelerating as we go into the future and it's it's plausible you know certain things are seem to be accelerating other things don't seem to be changing very much like nuclear technology (laughs) i think it depends where we are putting our energies you know we are particularly enamored of uh, pocket computers so all the global energy is going into making them better on a daily basis but other areas not so much house building in each country is pretty low tech Uh, it improves on a much slower pace than other things do cars improve uh, airplanes improve far faster than quite important technologies like putting a window in your home i think some of it is how the industries are interleaved and i'm sort of just talking out of my ass here i'm not going to claim to be an expert on this we already have all the material science we need to make tinier and tinier microchips it's just working out the details of putting smaller transistors into these materials but then on the flip side you're talking about building a new airplane you could put the same amount of effort into making a microchip half the size which will quadruple its performance or you can make an airplane one percent lighter which might make it fly two percent faster and that's the same amount of effort in both places because you have to do so much more fundamental science on the airplane because we've been working on that problem so much longer. I don't know, just... Yes, and the and those quadruple fast computers are being used to redesign the airplane. So everything advances using everything else. Totally. It's all intermeshed. Sorry, did we have more oil questions? I want to exhaust yeah. us on that while we have you, because you know way more about oil than, than we do. Yeah. And I'm sure our conservatives are going to say so many silly things about oil and climate change. Well, they can 
always rip you to pieces, whatever you say. <clears throat> I'm mostly saying things that are boringly obvious to people in the industry. <laughs> you do bring an air of authority to it, and hopefully we're arming people with that information. As I say, uh, I may have mentioned when I was talking to you before, but all the people I work with, lots of you know, highly educated, uh, trained scientists and so on. We all accept that climate change is almost certainly correct in that the scientists have done good research and that they're getting good answers. There's very little argument against it. So the idea that the, uh, the technologists inside the industry are fighting against it, it couldn't be further from the truth. We're all ever more concerned about the future of the planet, even as we are working to find more oil, which is doing harm. I think the problem occurs up at the level where the money starts being serious, because these people do not want to see their companies face huge headwinds or make less money. But say, if you talk to the oil workers in many of these industries, I think you'll find a lot of support for, uh, for what the climate change scientists are saying. I think you're probably right for the most part. Uh... Mako's looking at me. What's that look, man? Well, you started asking if there was more questions, and then he launched a tangent instantly before I could retort. Oh, that's why I'm getting the side eye? Yeah, I probably deserve that. Anyway, so <laughs> next question. And to answer your question directly, yes, we have more questions. <laughs> okay. So while a few companies have already declared that they have hit peak oil like for themselves due to reprioritizing into green energy, do you feel that we are at or near peak oil production overall? It's been a dangerous thing for anyone to predict for a while because as soon as you make a prediction, something significant changes to make it completely wrong. So uh, you have to hedge quite a lot. You say peak oil for conventional oil would be a good one. This is where you find it in a trap with a seal over the top and you pull it out as liquid direct from the reservoir. We've been struggling over many years to keep up our finding rate. So the uh, billions of barrels per year. It's getting harder and harder because there's not much planet left that hasn't been looked at. There's a few inaccessible countries like the um, the Congo and North Korea, but I don't think we're missing much. We've, we've got a pretty good understanding of much of the world. Tools change technologically, so the the seismic that I described earlier, where you send down the sound waves, because it's technology, it got refined and refined and refined. The development in computing has been astonishing in pulling more and more out of the signals we get back. So we can now see, in some cases, in favourable circumstances, we can actually see the oil in a trap underground. People don't realise how good the seismic has got. Our ability to drill in deep water, a lot of people don't realise it's quite difficult to drill in deep water. You have to lower a big tube down to the seabed and just controlling that gigantic weight of metal is difficult in itself. So you need ever bigger floating structures on the sea surface. But we've got better and better at deep drilling, at imaging the subsurface. They've slowed the rate of decline of finding oil in conventional traps. But at the same time, the world has been demanding more millions of barrels a day every day. So I think it was in 1969, we had 40 million barrels a day. And we're now on 100 plus million barrels of oil a day. So each one of those has to be replaced. Nowadays, we have to find 36 and a half billion barrels of oil a year to stand still. And we're not finding many of these big billion barrel fields anymore. They've all been found. Every now and then one, come, one comes along. So we've got the uh, discoveries off South America at the moment, or in Oco Delta, I think it is. And these are global news because they're finding big volumes of oil. But the gaps between such discoveries is getting further apart. We find less and less oil and more and more gas. We didn't used to want the gas, but now we look at gas as a substitute. But then occasionally you make a, a, a real breakthrough that opens up new forms of oil. So fracking was a real breakthrough. This idea that you could 
suck oil out of a rock that would not normally flow if you drilled a hole into it. Was that pun intentional? The, the Americans uh, fracking. As a breakthrough. Um, <laughs> it's short. It's it's short for fracturing. Sorry. No. Everybody loves it to frack, frack off. I didn't mean to take you off your stride. Uh, the, the industry the, the industry has been fracking rocks for many, many decades. It was a standard technique for enhancing production from a normal reservoir. The breakthrough was taking a rock that would not be a reservoir at all and applying the biggest frack that anyone's ever done and turning it into a sort of reservoir. The problem with fracking is that unlike a conventional reservoir, you can't produce it for 10 or 20 years. It flows for about 18 months in many cases, and then you, you just have to drill another one. So the, it's much closer to mining oil than it is um, finding a huge natural deposit and then just pumping it out of the ground. You, you constantly have to be drilling new holes and fracking new holes and moving to new locations. So you end up with every part of the surface has been drilled and fracked and there's little access roads everywhere, and it really makes a mess of the landscape. So you can imagine that people don't like to see that, but they also like to have cheap gas to put in their cars. Are you familiar with some of the problems we've had over here in the States with fracking near uh, residential communities? Yeah, I mean, I know that there was the, uh, what was the name of the film? There was a, a scandalous film where people opened up their taps and gas came out with the water and they were able to light it. Yeah, the, the but, there was a company that was breaking all the rules and they were putting flammable things into the groundwater and this one town didn't have a good water supply. Yeah, and that's happened a couple times. Yeah, I know there's a, there's a lot of misleading information out there. So uh, I, th I think many of the cases where people were lighting the uh, tap water was because they were in an area that, that was suitable for fracking. And the, the, the water well that had been drilled for their farm basically went through this area of very, very rich source rock. And there was gas naturally coming out with their water. And it was nothing to do with fracking. It was just they drilled a fairly poor quality water well. It needed to be redone properly. But um, yes, I understand there have been problems with fracking. One of the biggest problems I understand is that the cost of drilling the wells, they're trying to drive it down to make these things commercial. And so they do a poorer and poorer job of what they call completing, which is where you, you put a, a metal liner down the inside and then you run concrete cement down the outside of that to ideally to seal off the, uh, the rock units behind a barrier. But if you do a bad job, there can be a leak path. And so you get methane coming up the outside. And so when they fly these detector planes over the top of a, a fracking field, they can see all sorts of methane hotspots. And methane is a terrible uh, greenhouse gas, worse than CO2. The only thing it has in its favour is that it breaks down quite quickly, but it does a very strong greenhouse effect while it's up there. So we, we really have to... Uh, stop methane being emitted. Now, in that case, can we burn the methane that's coming off to convert it to CO2 to reduce that impact? Yes, we can. And, you know, the, the lowest grade remediation is to light on fire surplus methane and just flare it off. Better, of, better than that is to make it do some useful work. Oh, absolutely. Just uh, run, it, run it through some kind of uh, internal combustion system. But yeah, releasing it is the worst case what they call venting. If you just vent off the surplus methane, you're doing the most harm that you can possibly do with methane. Because it'll burn down burning eventually it, anyway, but in those 18 months before it does, it's capturing all kinds of heat. The 18 months, I'm not sure how long methane lives in the atmosphere for, but it certainly, it breaks down faster than CO2, which is very stable. Oh, I thought I heard you say that. Maybe I, I might have just made that number up. Forgive me. No, the eight, 18 months is the length of time a fracked well will keep producing, ah. roughly. 
Okay, I. It's it's sort of asymptotic. They, they after eighteen months, it's gone down to some you know so maybe twenty five percent of its original production, and then over the next eighteen months, it will go down to the twenty five percent of that. Uh, so they they have what they call the long tail, but it stops being commercial quite quickly. I went ahead and looked up the half life of methane. It depends on temperature, time, amount of light exposure. It's between five and eleven years. Still much faster than CO two. I do have an apparent disagreement with the rock doctor on the flaming taps, which makes me hesitant because he's an expert and I'm a layman, but we will save that for the next segment where Mako and I discuss this conversation. We have sources for all of this in the show notes. Thank you for clarifying that part. I'll have to go double check my assumptions about those taps then, see if that, if my earlier research... Cause I think the... I think there was an iconic image of someone lighting their tap water on fire, and that was found to be not due to fracking. But it, everybody remembers that image because it was such a strong image. Yeah. I think the film was called Gasland. Okay, we'll take a look at that, and we'll make sure that we cite that. And Yeah, or yeah, I mean, check it. If you, if you Googled uh, Gasland debunked, you might find the, uh, the truth behind it. As I say, the uh, the truth is slow and the, the lies are very fast. Indeed. I forget the exact quote. And I need to always keep in mind that I'm susceptible to things that are incorrect as well. Oh, yeah. I'm, not, I'm always telling people things that I thought were true that uh, because they're so neat. And then you later discover they're not true at all. And it's like, oh, damn it. That was such a good example. But you have to keep on top of it. The creationists keep us honest. They won't let us go with, get away with anything. <laughs> that is that is terrible. That is such a wasteful way to keep us honest. There are so many better... Oh, yeah. they're crying. I mean, it has been said that the evolution skeptics have made the science of evolution very much more rigorous. But you do feel maybe it wasn't the best use of science time to prove that their reasonable assumptions were actual truths because they all turned out to be true. But yeah, you know, you've got to face up to the challenges. Got to bring everybody along. Sometimes it feels like it would be easier if we didn't have to, but yeah, we probably should try. Yeah, well, I hate the idea that a smart kid might not hear the, the true version, because the true version is always far more interesting and far more worth listening to. And if there's not someone like you out there giving this source of good information, maybe that kid misses out. I hope I do reach out to more kids. And actually, it was a kid like that that inspired, maybe not inspired, but he was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of us kicking this off. So one kid out in the middle of Texas who just was surrounded by bad intellectual influences. We're like, okay, we can fix it for this one kid. Mm. Well, thank God for the internet where everyone has access to this stuff. I just wish the lies weren't so fast because the, the liars have instant access too. Yeah, I was going to say there's something to be said for social media. Mm. I do wonder, you know, we tend to fix problems through time, no matter how difficult, if they are worth fixing. And I really wonder how we are going to go about fixing the problem of untrustworthy information on the web. You know, maybe maybe we reinvent media companies, but with people realizing, no, they are necessary because you need some kind of a filter that says, if it's under this banner, then I can probably trust it. I hope that works. And I think those media companies are going to stem from the existing social media companies because of their presence and reach. And I don't even necessarily think it's going to be technically challenging. I mean, look at pornography on Facebook. If there's, and I'm totally, again, ripping off the Cognitive Dissonance podcast here, but if a nipple shows up on Facebook, 30 seconds later, it's gone. It can be copied to 100 different people. They will find all of it in 30 seconds and just nuke it, just blast all those nip slips, and they're gone. 
So this is where technology, if enough effort is put into a certain area, you can actually fix it. Oh, yeah. There's no reason we can't just write a little algorithm that says, hey, this is racist bullshit. Get it off. Or, hey, this is homophobic. Get it off. Or, oh, hey, this we ran by our fact checkers. Bullshit. Get it off. We don't because it's not profitable. I love, you know, other other ways of doing it, not just straightforward censorship of a certain type of image. But I was thinking it was a brilliant initiative because the distributed editing model meant that, you know, someone comes in and they make an outrageous edit to favor themselves or to tell their preferred lies. But they've evolved a system where that immediately gets highlighted and then editors come in and they switch it back to the original version and they say this is a contested area, so we are going to change the status of that page. And other pages that have no dispute over them, like a you know fundamental physics, they don't need to have that level of, of caution. But anything that involves current politicians obviously is carefully guarded information. And, and they're forced to write very neutral articles because otherwise hundreds of our editors change it back and forward. And I thought that showed maybe one way to get to a better model. And then Snopes, this idea of a, a, a place where you can go and just check if something is bullshit or true or partly true. I think people are experimenting with and finding ways to get there, but I'm not sure there's enough people who care. Oh, there's a ton of people who care. On this topic, I will be optimistic. For things like Snopes, though, the long-term concern is that if they do establish themselves as a dominant, reputable source of trustworthiness, or just gauging trustworthiness, then presumably at some point someone can take interest in that uh, influence, you know, purchase them, and then start steering them in whatever direction they want, leveraging that trustworthiness. Like what happened with yes, Huffington you Post? Would definitely need a, oh, sorry? You would definitely need a, a, an ecosystem of Snopes-like sites that effectively can be compared and can check each other. Taking the role of what old-school conventional journalists who used to aggregate the knowledge, write everything, and publish it. Rather, we need some people who Absolutely. just... We need to decompose that into different parts. Well, we used to have um, government control in that they required balance. And there's still quite a lot of that in this country, but it was done away with in the States. And that, I would say, has not proven to be a very successful so model. The fairness doctrine is really interesting. I think the part that hurt us around that the most wasn't getting rid of the both sides part of it, because the both sides part of it, I think, was kind of bullshit. People who had bullshit would just stand in opposition, and it was used to put creationism up against evolution so many times. But part of yes. part of those rules was also rules around what was news, right? Like Fox News came about after we got rid of this stuff, and they get to call themselves news because there's no rules around what calls itself news. It used to be that yes. you had had to take a that's all opinion. Yeah. And you used to have to take a certain type of editorial stance and like, you know, fact check and do things to be called news. And now you don't. I think just that little bit of a change could make a huge difference. And it would get Fox News, Breitbart and Alex Jones and probably hit the Guardian, too. (sighs) The um, uh, the shock jock, I think, was the (laughs) first thing I became aware of where it was effectively no holds barred broadcasting. And I had a friend who was driving around some of the uh, states that had these shock jocks. And he said he had to stop his car and listen to these things. He simply couldn't believe that it was legal to put this stuff out over the airwaves. But there was a market for it and there was no law against it. And so they broadcast. And, uh, you know, I was, I was glad that that model didn't get it across the Atlantic. But on the top, you just think when someone's put on the topic of things that are technically legal, should we share our raffle plans with Dr. Sean? Oh, my God. Might as well. Yeah. 
Wait, so we're trying to grow the podcast and we want to give away something cool, right? And what's more American than firearms, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. We can't actually give away a gun, but it turns out flamethrowers are legal in every state. All 50 of them, they're legal. So we figure we'll not give away a flamethrower the first time, but we're considering it, right? You know, once we hit certain earnings milestones, we're open to the idea of purchasing a flamethrower and then raffling it off. Which I think is great because you could always, it's not a firearm. You, a flamethrower isn't a firearm. It's amazing. Even though it's one of the only ones that has actual fire. <laughs> Americans are crazy. Crazy around firearms. So we actually found a few flamethrowers that have some interesting customization options. Uh, a couple of them were even napalm compatible, apparently. Yeah. Uh-huh. Apparently, these things that are outlawed for use in war by, you know, some important people in Geneva, uh, they're totally cool for agricultural use. Yeah. Uh, and we even found one of these flamethrowers. Uh, this one wasn't napalm compatible, but one that could be uh, fixed to a drone. So you can have a drone flamethrower. That sounds unwise. <laughs> That's what we were thinking. That's why we're not going to use it. We're going to raffle it off. Yeah. I think I did see a YouTube video of someone who'd attached a running chainsaw to a heavy-duty drone. <laughs> and he demonstrated he, he demonstrated it by flying it to the top of a, a fir tree and cutting the top off the tree. Oh, he's doing useful things. And I'm it. thinking... That helps a lot. That helps a well, lot. I think he wanted to show how deadly it was, but yeah, I just think only in America. I think we just found the next horror movie idea. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, the whole thing about drones is you need a swarm of them. (laughs) A swarm of chainsaw chainsaw wielding drones chasing you across uh, the the plains of Nebraska. (laughs) Mako's laughing. This is the upgrade to the. uh... Mako's laughing so hard you knocked his headphones off. Yeah, my headphones (laughs) off. This is the upgrade of the uh, the Hitchcock film. But yeah, you, once you put your mind to it, there's, there's all sorts of ways of creating mayhem. Isn't technology grand? And it's technically not illegal. <laughs> I'm going to have to go, I'm afraid, chaps. I was just about to discuss uh, how we politely segue out of this, because we've asked every uh, science question that we had. There's a couple government questions we left out, but... This was very engaging. One last thing. Do you want to leave any contact info if people want to ask you questions or do you want to plug a book or a paper you've written? Uh, no plugs. Haven't got anything to... Um, not sure about direct. Yeah, go for direct. I can always ignore the emails. Um, so the email I just gave you is the only one I really use. As I say, I'm, because I'm not selling anything, uh, perfectly happy to answer questions. Oh, okay. If anybody wants to reach the podcast, you can reach us at contact at disevidentia.com. If anybody has geology or... Okay. Petro industry questions, oil industry questions for Dr. Sean Hodges. You can reach him at seanhodges at hotmail.com. And you probably have to spell out the Sean because I spell it the Irish way. S-E-A-N-H-O-D-G-E-S at hotmail.com. Sorry, my brother is named Sean, spelled just like yours. So most of the Seans I know are that spelling. Yeah, but there's lots of lots of varieties. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. My relatives seem to seem to come up with a new one every time they send me a birthday card. Oh, no. You get the ones that are really weird. S-H-O-N. You're like, well, thanks for trying. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This is this is going to be fantastic. Okay, thank you for having me. This is going to take so much editing. Mm-hmm. You're, you said you wanted no more than two minutes, but here we are. Well, I... Oh, fuck me. Finish it.
So we just got to cover part two of our interview with the Rock Doctor. Mm -hmm. We got a few questions in about climate change and oil. We discussed a little bit about nuclear energy, fracking. We went way off and discussed asteroid mining for a few minutes. So there were a couple things I pulled up sources for. Some things I got a little bit wrong. In there, I thought Pete Ricketts, the governor of the state of Nebraska, bought the drugs with his own money. Turns out he blew $54,000 of Nebraska funds on these lethal injection drugs from a shady middleman in India. Never got the money back. Never got the drugs. Oh. Yay. Great. Execution gases. I said CO2. Uh, When I fact-checked it, it was actually nitrogen. And three states are doing it. Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Alabama. Mm-hmm. I'm making sure to add all the different sources for nuclear power. The Rock Doctor mentioned a link to the Wikipedia page with battery sizes. It's actually a really cool chart. There's all kinds of battery sizes I didn't know about. Yeah, weird batteries for weird things. And they don't all have the same name. He said they were called double A's over there, but they also have like 15 other names like H29s. Oh my god, there's a quadruple A. It's so tiny. Why? If your pet guinea pig has a TV remote and they need to power that. FNA234SR44. Who the hell named this? A robot. I don't know. Oh, on robots. We talked about the singularity for a hot second there. And I actually read all of Ray Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines. It's a sequel to another book I've read, The Age of Intelligent Machines, where Kurzweil goes into AI and he actually coined the term singularity in one of those two books. And I'll go ahead and leave a link in the show notes because I think it's an interesting read. The book's a little bit older now, so it's it's still making predictions for today. And he got some of them right. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's like all the little stuff. And I feel kind of bad on this one because I disagree with the rock doctor on one point. And he's really smart. So I'm really hesitant to do that. <laughs> wow. Such what? sincerity in your voice there. He is really smart. I wasn't trying to be sarcastic. The old that part, I believe, yes, comes with having a PhD generally. I could name a few. That's why I said generally. So I did exactly what he said when he told me to Google Gasland debunked. And it seems like superficially there's good reasons to disagree with the Gasland documentary, right? Specifically, what we were talking about was people lighting their tap water on fire, right? And it is true that there have been staged instances of people lighting their tap water on fire and their tap water wasn't impacted by fracking. And even worse to people using that as their main point, there have been towns where there have been tap water fires for decades in the United States. I'll put a link in the show notes from the API, the American Petroleum Industry. It's like association or union or something, but it's API.org. And they have a big page full of defenses. And as near as I can tell, everything they say there is totally true. But it's also incomplete because we have other scientists that aren't, you know, directly claiming to be the oil industry showing a causal link between other people having their tap water catch fire. So I put a link to an article from ProPublica where they digest some of these scientific papers and go over it in a nice, easy to understand way for us. And I'll try to give you the shorter version of this. There's, uh, first, People who don't have flaming tap water sometimes have fracking happen near them. Then they have flaming tap water. That doesn't demonstrate causality, but yeah. that yeah, but that it's an interesting correlation. It raises questions. Yeah, and it's happened many times. It's many dozens or many hundreds of times. Okay, so many. This isn't like they're invoking magic. This isn't them claiming UFOs and there's only hoaxes. We know the tap water catches fire after the fracking. Just looking at it as an outside observer, this is 
a thing that happened, and it looks like at least some of those were caused by the fracking or methane drilling. And when I'm saying fracking, I mean fracking and drilling for methane. Mm-hmm. Right? They're different processes, but they both have the possibility to leak methane into groundwater sources, which then get sucked into either wells or into municipal water supplies. And, you know, this might just be that the rock doctor comes from a country with a functioning government and functioning safety regulations, so methane never gets into their tap water. Maybe. Maybe. Well, that's just correlation still. And correlation doesn't guarantee causation. It kind of implies it, but it doesn't guarantee it. Okay. Well, some scientists went in and tried to search for markers, because the methane isn't pure, there's other chemicals in it, right? And they can trace down whether it's biogenic or thermogenic methane. Kind of big words, really simple definitions. Biogenic means biogenic methane comes from decaying organic matter. Really simple. This you'd expect to see in tap water, because tap water comes from lakes, ponds, aquifers, places where there might be germs and other things decaying. It happens. Thermogenic means it was made through heat, generally from a geological process. So like we discussed, when things get pushed down under under the ground and they're compressed by many layers of rocks, you get thermogenic methane. There were wells that people were getting their water from. There were wells that had a problem with methane, as in the tap water would burn, but it was all biogenic methane. And then fracking or methane mining would come in, and then the wells were still flaming, but produced thermogenic, meaning that methane came directly from the fossil fuel extracting process, and into the groundwater. And then one other thing, this just isn't well covered anywhere, nobody even in the oil industry is denying that other chemicals besides methane can get in the tap water. All of the arguments against this are all of the fracking and natural gas extraction companies saying, we didn't let your tap water on fire. They're saying, they're, they're saying, we didn't let your tap water on fire. They're not saying, we didn't pollute your tap water. They're kind of owning up to polluting tap water. It's just there's no federal maximum for how much methane you can have in your tap water, so your tap water can catch fire, and that's legal. Yep. Okay, on to something else somewhat light. I put a source in the show notes for where you can buy grenades. Oh, fun. The Rock Doctor had questions about that. I don't think it's actually legal in Oklahoma, but maybe you can. Check out oldsargesdropzone.com. Uh, was there anything else from our conversation with the Rock Doctor you wanted to address? Nothing that's coming to mind. You can support us by coming all over your keyboard at OnlyFans.com slash Disevidentia. Are we going to be like a weirder Belle Delphine? Instead of selling bathwater, we're selling cummy keyboards. So we just got done contradicting the smartest guy on our podcast ever and telling our listeners where to buy live grenades. You know, fun stuff. We're showing growth of our podcast with this. You know, on the topic of growth, we're still going to do that raffle, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, I think we'll just limit it to some really nice flash drives. For now, for now. Yeah, so next episode, we'll have details on that. But for now, I guess we're going to discuss climate change? Yes. It's a big, big topic, and we can't possibly cover it all, but we're picking a few things to focus on. Can we do a better job covering it? then the Arctic ice is doing a better job covering northern Canada? Well, maybe. <laughs> That's a lot of coverage. I don't think we have to support as many polar bears. No, we we definitely don't. That would be horrifying. You grabbed some sources on the existing and ongoing effects of climate change. Just a good way to positively assert that, yeah, this is real. People keep talking about climate change as if it's going to happen in 20, 30 years, when really, even 20, 30 years ago, it was happening. And we're now getting into the part of climate change where 
the effects are accelerating still. And so we're seeing significant changes within smaller timescales. So it's getting easier and easier to point at things being like, hey, that's not normal. So what are some things you want to point at? The biggest one that stands out to me, if like most of our listeners probably in middle school or high school at some point or another learned about the Northwest Passage. The idea of taking a boat over the top of Canada. Yeah, it was mythical. It was impossible. Yeah, well, historically, there was too much ice for it to be traversed. Yeah, I remember hearing about some famous explorer that I don't remember the name of, but I remember them trying to make trips north of Canada and just getting stuck and the trip being doomed. Yeah, and there's an enormous economic incentive for there to be a Northwest Passage, which is why multiple expeditions were launched in order to find one. And they even accounted for favorable conditions like waiting for the summer in order to try to do it when there'd be the least amount device and that didn't really work but in recent years and when i say recent uh most of it has been within the last uh, 12 years i believe there's actually been a significant reduction in the arctic ice to the point where a northwest passage has actually opened up didn't we first see it by satellite and then we just started sending boats up there and it's easy now there were uh, some satellite images gathered by ESA the European Space Agency that showed there was a significant decline of the ice back in 2007 and they predicted that it would be sufficiently open but a a hands-on investigation of the region actually showed that there's still sufficient amount of ice to make navigation very difficult for any ship that's not explicitly constructed for the task okay so that was back in 2007 2007 yes what does it look like now Uh, well right now it's it's pretty clear uh like to the point where a lot of uh, both corporate and private interests are exploring the possibility of utilizing it more and more Uh, so specifically back in september 2013 the nordic orion which was a, a sea freighter it navigated the northwest passage Uh, It was the first of its class to do this. The Crystal Serenity, a luxury liner, carried 1,700 people, crossed the Northwest Passage from Vancouver to New York, and they set a new record doing this. Their voyage took 28 days in order to get from Vancouver to New York. They circumvented Canada by going north of Alaska? So step one to get to New York in 28 days is go west? Yes. Okay. That's the funny peculiarity of geography in the extreme north. To clarify, this luxury liner was just paying people for a cruise. Yeah, it's a normal cruise liner. It was just paid. So people were cruising. This was a pleasure trip. Yes. Was there anything to see up there or was it just ice? Uh, Ice, polar bears, seals, more ice, some ice. So would you say these people were, like, going clubbing? That is a distinct possibility. Okay, so they came back with all baby fur seal coats. I didn't find any sources on that, but I will stick with distinct possibility. Oh, jeez, I am just kidding, and you're talking about actual baby seal death. Okay, so the Northwest Passage did not only open up transit for humans. Gray whales are species of whale that were overhunted in the Atlantic Ocean. And specifically in the Atlantic Ocean region, they were believed to be extinct. They still existed in the Pacific Ocean, don't panic. But in May 2010, they actually found more gray whales in the Mediterranean Sea. Had they not seen gray whales in the Mediterranean before that? No. And why would the whales have gone 
north of Canada and not south of Chile. They were following food sources is the belief. Oh, so there's not like a good food source that goes south from South America. That is my understanding. They don't actually know exactly why the gray whales were spotted in the Mediterranean Sea and like not somewhere else in the Atlantic or exactly how they got there. But that is the the prevailing hypothesis is that they followed food sources. That is awful suspicious that this only happened after the Northwest Passage opened. Indeed. I think the whales were emitting the greenhouse gases the whole time. Stupid farting whales. So that doesn't prove it all by itself, but that is really... These are all really interesting yeah. things that were impossible when we were children. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on at the Northwest Passage, and there's a lot of companies that are eyeing it for uh, future commercial use. The Canadian government has a few things to say about the Northwest Passage, like it thing considers the Northwest Passage to be in completely internal waters to the Canadian government itself, and most other countries are like, yeah, no, this is international waters. So that's kind of something that needs to be settled before business really booms there. That is interesting because the ice or ice shelves are treated like ground because you can walk on it or <laughs> military things on it. But now all that's kind of melted away. Yeah. Like what happens to Florida? International waters extend so many miles from the, the, the beaches, right? I know it's not exactly that. But if Florida sinks under the ocean, are we going to claim the whole length of Florida as our territory out into the uh, body of water that connects the Atlantic to the Caribbean? Raises some interesting questions. It's the same type of thing, right? What if Hawaii sinks? What if Hawaii just sinks into the ocean? Do we still own that patch of water? And do they still own the, I presume, many thousands of miles of ice that would comprise the Northwest Passage? No. Okay. So that's that's a thing. So climate change is going to lead to some court cases. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So one company is already planning to do a bunch of things with the Northwest Passage. I don't know how exactly they're sorting out the legalities of it. Presumably they largely have these things sorted out already. They've talked to the Canadian government and gotten permission, is my guess. But Silver Sea Cruises has... Recently, and when I say recently, I mean like yesterday as of this recording, announced their deployment schedule for 2023 and 2024. And in this deployment schedule, they have 12 voyages crossing the Northwest Passage, and they expect each voyage to take 24 days. This is another uh, luxury passenger liner. So they're shaving another four days off the time, so it's getting easier to travel? Yes. And they feel comfortable taking rich people who can afford lawyers through here. Yes. Okay. So, 12 times in two years. So it's once every two months. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's that's impressive. Yeah. So then we also have a source that I picked up from BBC about the Northwest Passage, and they bring up some interesting points, but in particular, they have an interactive map, if you want to take a look at that, where you can slide it to either side to show you exactly how much Arctic ice coverage there is between, what is it, 1990 and 2012? And it's just, it's a it's an extreme change between the amount of ice coverage. Yeah. So just real quick, your other source was, uh, use Wikipedia to get the, the context, but you also used cruiseindustrynews.com? For the Silver Sea Cruises. Okay. And this BBC map? Yep. Is showing median ice edge. Okay, so there's where the ice was, where the ice is, and some statistical information about the ice. But it used to completely fill up all those islands north of Canada. Yeah. And now it pretty much doesn't. Yeah, you can see how the Northwest Passage was completely closed off 
before in 1990, but it very much is not now. And what's interesting is there's some places further south where more ice has been added, but it's really tiny compared to the places where the ice has been removed. Yeah. Yeah. So that same article goes into a few other things, like they talk about you know, the reflectivity and albedo of ice and snow, and they talk about the vi- the increasing viability of the Northwest Passage for commercial purposes. But aside from like the legal issues, there's also the concerns about environmental impacts and the fact that the whole Northwest Passage is largely undeveloped. And if any kind of accident were to occur, if a rescue needed to happen, the logistics of getting things out there, getting them safely and extracting them safely is they're all questions that need to be answered and at the moment they are not meaningfully answered this article also talks about how because all the ice is melting and that's clearly turning into water that's what happens when ice melts and it's not saltwater ice it's uh it's largely freshwater that's being dumped into the ocean and they touch on the north atlantic current and how it fits less salty then the strength of the current is diminished and that may have some larger environmental impacts as a result of a, a weaker North Atlantic current. And uh, this is something that I've heard about before. You know, I could go into a lot more detail, but we don't really have the time to go into that kind of detail. Maybe if we dedicate an episode to it or half an episode, probably seems more appropriate. But keep in mind that North Atlantic current is largely responsible for transporting warm water up into the North Atlantic, which is how Europe manages to keep the relatively warm temperatures that it enjoys. Because Europe, or most of Europe, is at the same latitude as Siberia. And Siberia is not known for its warmth. So most of Europe is at the same latitude as Siberia. So the bad news is if the North Atlantic current does in fact get diminished enough, Europe gets a lot colder. But the good news is that if we just keep pushing climate change and global warming, then Europe will heat back up. It's fine. By that point, won't like India, Indonesia, Mexico, Ecuador, won't all these places pretty much just be on fire? Mm, pretty much, actually. The <laughs> I mean, You th- sounded way too serious. I kind of am. Like increasing wildfires is a... Not only a prediction of climate change, but it is something we are already seeing. It is. And we almost certainly will see that in these regions. Mm. Increasing frequency of uh, just vegetation catching fire. Yeah, I didn't mean literally. I just, yeah, that, that kind of sucks. No, that very sucks. Ugh. Okay, so if all the ice melts, it might, we don't know for certain, but it might interrupt this conveyance of warm water from the tropics to Western Europe. And if that stops, Europe cools down. If we keep cool, if we keep heating the planet, Europe warms back up. It is based on solid science, but yes, the the question does remain exactly how much fresh water does it take to disrupt this system. And we have some information on how much the system has already been disrupted. And depending on which estimate you go with, it's generally between, I believe, don't quote me on this, but like probably between a 10 and 20% like diminished strength but going forward we we don't have like a solid idea of how much further it's going to be diminished especially since so yeah it's it's hard to say okay so there's just a lot of details there like i'm not even sure what strength you're talking about you're talking about the strength of the moving water up like to move the temperature into warm europe uh pretty much yes so the strength of the current itself 
And the how that manifests is pretty much how far north the North Atlantic current will go. Gotcha. So if we keep adding more freshwater, it might not go as far north. And instead of England and Ireland and Scotland getting warmed, it might just stop at Portugal. Yeah. Okay. Or worse. Or worse. Right, so then Gibraltar stops getting warmed or something. Yeah. Okay. If that climate model is accurate, that's the type of thing you can expect. And later on, well, I guess... We're just going to point out that climate change models are pretty accurate. Because when you look at them, you know, when one of them gets a thing wrong, usually they all get that thing wrong because they just didn't account for it. But usually they get everything else correct. Like the one that tricked us up was uh, the amount of heat oceans could absorb. We just didn't factor in ocean acidity. But yeah, way more details for later. Hey, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that. You had another point of uh, modern evidence of climate change, didn't you? A, a few more, yeah. Okay, so we've got the Northwest Passage opening and the kind of problems that could cause. Mm -hmm. Okay. So also, globally, there is, in addition, okay, so this kind of is like touching on a similar topic to the Northwest Passage, but just the general notion of receding ice and snow. And there's a lot of information about glaciers specifically and how they've been shrinking worldwide. There's been a lot of like shrinking, growing, shrinking, growing that happened quite a bit until about 1980-ish. And then there was a significant change from 1980 forward in just glaciers where they pretty much just dominantly shrunk. And they continue to shrink. So we have a Wikipedia article that is a high-level overview of glaciers that have been shrinking since 1850. So we got some good information going back even further than the, the more aggressive glacier shrinking that I mentioned. We have an AP News link that gets a little bit more specific about glacier shrinkage happening in North America. And... This is something that we already knew about even be long before this AP News article came out. The reason that this article came out and was news is because they they did account for it in the climate model, like what you were saying, but what they got wrong was the rate at which it was happening. And when that happens, usually we find out it's happening actually faster than we expected. Yeah, and in this case, your notes say... It happened 18% faster than the scientists predicted. In 2013. No, so for the one year. So the other no, years no, no, they either got no. it right or it was even faster. They calculated it in 2013. Oh. And that's how recent of data was still incorrect. And it was incorrect in the most horrifying way possible. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Melting. Okay. Uh, you had one other source. So this is a little bit more specific to one specific location that kind of highlights the uh, the severity of this and what we can expect in more locations like it throughout the world as time goes on and we continue to not address this. But the, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, I apologize in advance, the Chalcaltea, Chalcaltea Ski Resort in the Bolivian Andes. Uh, it was established sometime in the 1930s, I believe. I couldn't find any good hard sources on exactly when it was established, but the uh, the gondola conveyor, that machine I did find was uh, definitely installed in 1939. Wow. That's still like an 80-year-old gondola. That's impressive. Yeah. So 1930s is when the ski resort was established. It's, we're getting close to a century. Did they even have gondolas back then? I thought before 1940, all you had was bricks and food. Uh, they The thing that I read said that they fashioned it from actually an automobile um, engine. What? Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. They, yeah, they jury rigged something and it worked for them. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So in 2005, they had already started seeing a, a decline in the snow and ice around the ski resort. And it was predicted that pretty much all of the ice would be gone, melted, and the ski resort would no longer be a ski resort within a decade. So by 2015, they were wrong. It actually happened in 2009, four years later. Oh, great. That's that's horrifying. Yeah. So this ski resort is now defunct. It, it was steady, stable, year-round ski accommodations for nearly a century, and now there's no snow or ice there. Even in winter? Even in winter. Yeah, okay. I, w- I wanted to clarify because I just wasn't sure if you were saying, oh, there's no snow in summer, but if there's no snow in winter, that's a big change. I mean... I guess I had, didn't read anything that explicitly said that even not in winter, but they just, everything said that there is no snow or ice there. And I'm interpreting it as even in winter, but I suppose there is a, a corner case where maybe they mean. It also is listed as the highest ski resort. So maybe it only relied on snow or ice from snow caps and it wasn't a seasonal thing. Yeah. Maybe their season was snow cap. Could be. Right. There's places with no discernible seasons. Like I, I used to live in Death Valley. The season there is hot. So going forward. Ski resorts is one of those things that you can see diminish over time. If you have a favorite ski resort, it probably won't continue to exist going forward. And exactly for how long depends on exactly where it is. Should we just invest in companies that make snow machines? No. Are you sure that's not a reasonable solution to global warming? I'm pretty just sure. buy snow? There's... Certainly the free market can solve this. Maybe, but definitely not like that. Hmm. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to discuss on receding ice and snow? Uh, other than touching on those details, not particularly, no. I kept the duct tape near the soundproof panel, so remounting it was easy. Oh, that's good. Then there's one specific video I'd like to touch on. Yep. I've linked it in the show notes. It's got this right-leaning PC gaming enthusiast. He talks about... Dell not being able to sell computers in six states. He, of course, turns this entirely political and starts accusing these states of passing laws that make business too hard, and rather than fixing their own corruption problems, they project outward and hurt businesses with laws instead of fixing their own problems. That's his claim. And you can watch his video. It's idiotic. I don't don't have any good words for it. He's just he clearly didn't research it. He's clearly more about grinding an axe. He's not citing sources. So, yeah. What I have done is gone out and gotten some sources to try to carefully explain this and try to understand this so we might understand how climate change denial myths and propaganda get started. Because all of these arguments that get used against climate change started somewhere, and it's hard to track back where this happened but we can catch maybe a new one in motion. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this common belief, right? I'm sure if you've ever argued with a conservative or if you have been the conservative doing arguing, there's this common belief that regulation hurts business, makes it harder to do things. And that's sort of what this whole argument stands on. Yeah. They're trying to set up this dichotomy of if we want to legislate to help climate change, you're going to hurt business. Okay, so we're just going to pick at this, this notion, to get at how This doesn't have to be the case, and this doesn't have to be true. So some things that are true. Dell can't sell gaming PCs in six states right now. Isn't it only specific PCs? Yes, specific PCs. Yeah, so it's not like California just passed a law that incidentally banned all Dell PCs. No. It is just specific PCs from Dell. Yes. Specific PCs from Dell are too wasteful to be sold in six specific states. Mm -hmm. These six specific states 
based their laws on some California energy regulations. Back in 1978, California came up with the Energy Star, uh, I don't want to say standard, but the Energy Star regulations and rules. If you have ever been in a store with appliances or you've bought a new appliance and it had that big Energy Star sticker on it, that started off in California in the late 70s because California wanted to mandate that efficiency be taken into account by the free market. So this is fairly minimal. If you're a company that can make appliances, you can certainly afford a sticker to put on your appliance to say how efficient it is. And the goal is to get competition on efficiency. Well, in 2015, California passed some new laws and five other states, including Vermont, Washington, I think Oregon and Colorado. I don't recall the full list. I will make sure it's in the show notes. But they all based their new rules on California's rules. They passed these rules in 2016, and they're taking effect in staggered time periods. And one of these rules took effect July 1st this month. Okay? Yep. So some of these rules specifically call out a cap on per year power consumption, and they demand a, a certain level of efficiency of the device. Now, you might start wondering, what is the efficiency of a gaming system, right? It's not, it's not like there's an amount of, of units of power to units of fun, right? That, that's gibberish. It doesn't make sense. But for those out there who aren't familiar with computers, there's a, a device inside called the power supply, or, or, or PSU. So if I say either of those, I'm talking about the same thing. But this converts wall power, AC, to power the computer can use, DC. And some of it's lost along the way. And really efficient power supplies lose very little. And there's rules on how efficient that has to be. Okay. There's also some rules about how much power a computer can use while it's in a sleep mode. And then there's rules based on whether or not it's a tablet, a portable gaming system, a workstation, you know, different types of computers they allow different allowances for. And they had experts make these rules and make these charts. And I think you can tell experts did it because it's causing very few problems with anybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. All of this into account. Dell isn't shipping PCs. We have several sources for that, including the FPS Review, a gaming website, Reuters, right? We have sources for these rules being passed in 2016. We have uh, nrdc.org and etechnics.com that describe the rules in greater detail. And denofgeek.com, they gave me the details about computers uh, needing to pass certain sleep power consumption requirements. All of this together tells us, or tells me, this is a Dell-specific problem. Because I personally went and spec'd out computers at a few different... At a few different uh, stores. Uh, I went to to describe what causes this problem. As Mako pointed out, it is only very high power consumption computers. So I priced out things with very high-end graphics cards. These use many hundreds of watts. High-end CPUs use many hundreds of watts. The HP one had no problem. I spec'd out an HP Omen with $4,000 worth of parts. No problem. Same parts that the Dell PC had were very similar in terms of power consumption. It didn't have a problem. They could ship it. I priced out one from Origin PC. Similar stuff, didn't have a problem, was totally willing to ship to 90210, both of them. And then I checked with our show sponsor, ABK Customs. They will totally ship to California. I know this is self-serving, but it was totally relevant. And if you're in California and need a computer, abkcustoms.com. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to make light of that. But if all these other people can do it, why can't Dell? Okay, so here's where things start seeming a little bit fallacious. People are blaming the energy efficiency rules when even these other tiny businesses can keep up and other big businesses can keep up. You might not have heard of Origin PC, but they make a ton of PCs. They're the PC assembling arm of Corsair. They were bought recently and Corsair makes a ton of computer stuff. Everybody's heard of HP, right? And the little guys, right? Like ABK Customs. I think part of the, the reason is just the, 
the brand awareness with the Alienware brand, which is owned by Dell. Oh, yeah. Did specifically point out that it was uh, Alienware high-end computers. Yep. With people hearing of it? Yeah. Well, th- that were having issues with the, the rules. Well, there are two theories to why Dell can't ship these. Because everybody else can ship. Mm-hmm. HP can, Origin PC can, ABK Customs can. Everybody else can ship PCs to California. Yeah. Only Dell can. So Dell's actually failing somewhere. Yeah. My current thought right now is their power supplies aren't efficient enough. I've put a link in the show notes to a computer reviewer. And I think that, or I know that when you order a thing with any of these graphics cards, you need to get one with a very highly spec power supply. It needs to convert a uh, 1,000 watts. And I think their power supplies aren't efficient enough. And another one of our sources, Den of Geeks, suspects that these computers are consuming too much power in sleep mode. Either of these are entirely plausible, but I haven't gone through all the laws and I haven't bought a $3,000 Dell computer to test it. Uh, Nor do I recommend you do so. This isn't a correction, but since the initial recording, Gamers Nexus has come out with additional news. Through their own testing, they've determined that the issue is Dell's power supplies are inefficient during a sleep state. So both of the hypotheses that were put forward were correct. And by looking at all the clues involved, and by taking into account all the facts, we could narrow it down. So even though we didn't know perfectly what the problem was, we did successfully narrow it down to it being Dell's problem. Just to recap, some of the important clues were that other companies could ship computers, Dell was forcing their custom power supplies on people, and that the rules specifically called out idle power consumption and power supply efficiency. We can also take this as a cautionary lesson, because not all of the clues that I gathered actually mattered. These rules only affect businesses doing more than $2 million in revenue per year. So one of the sources I checked, ABK Customs, doesn't ship $2 million a year, I don't think. So again, let's try to help out a small business. If you're going to get a new computer, consider getting one from them. Give them code evidence for a 10% discount. I have included a link to the Gamers Nexus video with this extra information about the regulations. I also think it serves as a good example of showing that experts were definitely included and they go into more detail about the regulations and show the industry standards, including the power efficiency standards referred to as 80+. If you're at all interested in this kind of thing, it's definitely worth a watch. And they have more examples of spin and major news outlets reporting wildly untrue things. These don't appear to be malicious. It just appears to be exemplary of how difficult nuance is to convey. No, Dell's going through class action lawsuits right now about screwing people over. They're in all kinds of scandals for uh, lying about warranties. If you check out any of the tech reviewers, you can see the kinds of scams Dell is perpetrating. Don't buy a Dell. It's it's problematic. (laughs) Taking that into account, right? If everybody else can sell in California, but Dell can't, and Dell's the only one selling... Selling warranties you explicitly said you didn't want, or charging you for things you explicitly said you didn't want, or just lying and giving you the wrong thing, as their class action lawsuit states. I guess allegedly just selling you the wrong thing, as their class action lawsuit states. And everybody else has no problem selling it. This isn't an energy regulation problem. The rest of the industry has adapted. They've figured it out, particularly because they had five years to figure it out. They had five years to sell all of their old backstock and buy the new efficient stuff and figure it out. Well, we can see that this one story where where someone in a few years could say, of course, climate change regulation impairs business, so we can't afford it. Look at Dell. Dell wasn't able to sell computers. This story will easily get magnified to all Dell computers, even though you clarified it's only 
specific gaming computers, mm-hmm. the Alienware brand, and not even all of them, just some of the Alienware brand. Yep. It's not all computers across the industry. It's not even all gaming computers across the industry, right? I spec'd out uh, computers with the same specifications, the same CPUs, the same graphics cards, expensive high-end stuff, parts that'll easily consume five, six, seven hundred watts of power, but only the Dells can't ship. And then the right-wing people are saying, hey, it's California's fault. This is Dell's fault. Now, if we take that logic back and we look at other myths, other different beliefs about regulation hurting this, might the same logic apply? We can't get to the root of all of these different myths and beliefs because some of them are just lost to time. But simple things like cap and trade. We discussed this a little bit with the rock doctor. The notion that we limit the amount of carbon that can be released and businesses have a pay for, or they pay for the right to pollute a little bit. Then they make an educated decision about whether or not they want to, and they pay money to either buy carbon credits or they pay a tax to the government. And in doing so, we slowly raise that cap and businesses pollute less, and eventually the problem's solved. That doesn't have to be anti-business, and maybe the cases against it are are similarly baseless to this Dell argument. And I'm picking this one because it's so obvious and so apparent. I would like to hope we can compare and contrast this to other stories like this. And there are tons of them. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Just to go over my sources one more time. I have the YouTube video that I linked, uh, Dell Not Shipping, FPS Review, and Reuters. The places talking about the rules, nrdc.org, etechnics.com, and denofgeek.com. I have a link to Gamers Nexus, where he reviews an Origin Alienware PC and points out that you have to get the really expensive power supply on all the units that are banned, or all the units that are prohibited from sale. They weren't prohibited from sale at the time of his purchase, but he talks about the power supply. I link to futurism.com for a little bit of extra detail, and I link to each of the places that I spec'd out computers from. Did you have any questions about this, or did we cover just about everything? Not a question, but just a side thing that we didn't really highlight Dell was forcing people to upgrade to a kilowatt power supply? Uh, yeah. So, this is sort of all over the place. This is way deep into what makes PCs tick as an industry. But Dell doesn't actually make anything. Yeah. Right? That's fine. They assemble computers, but they buy power supplies, they buy motherboards, they buy CPUs, they buy graphics cards and all this stuff. And when you buy bulk from fewer suppliers, you get them cheaper. Mm -hmm. So the going hypothesis as to why Dell is doing this, because they're not sharing all this information, is they have a low-end power supply and a high-end power supply for their Alienwares. And as soon as you get past what the low-end can handle, you have to go to the high-end. And uh, the video I linked to Gamers Nexus, he actually bought one with the lower-end power supply. So we don't know what the efficiency rating is of the higher-end one unless we go buy one and crack it open and look. But uh, once you get past, I think, 550 watts, something like that, you have to go with a 1,000-watt one. That's ridiculous. It saved Dell two cents per unit or something. Yeah. And something about those higher-end machines isn't efficient enough for the state of California. Yeah. And we were paying extra for it, or whoever bought a Dell was paying extra for it as it sucked extra power out of the walls needlessly. This is such a pro-free market solution. It's like you had five years to adapt, Dell. And people now get to know a little bit about the efficiency of the devices they're buying. Like that it hits some certain minimum. Yeah. Also, watch the whole review from Gamers Nexus. Don't buy a Dell. They're garbage. They had that feeling about Dell for quite some time. Apparently their laptops don't suck, but man, the inside of that desktop was scary. Mississippi? Mississippi. Mississippi. You wanted to discuss, uh... 
some things there might be a bit too many details on. You know, simple topics like carbon sequestration or ocean oh. acidification. Yeah, oh, oh my god. Uh, oh, surely we can cover these in what, two minutes, three minutes? Um, no, absolutely not, and you know it. Okay, you've got seven. Uh, <laughs> so, when I was trying to assemble more information about what's currently going on with climate change, it is important to understand carbon sequestration. Sequestation? Sequestration? Sequestering. So sequestration. Sequestration. It's like castration, but you get to keep the stuff. Delightful. Mako's physically cringing. So, carbon sequestration. It is important to understand how that kind of plays into things in order to understand how the, like, the, the cycles of... Because, like... I'm already hitting the problem that trying to go into these topics is, and that is that there's a lot of really fine, nuanced ideas and information that is required to understand it. You need to go multiple layers deep into it. You need to understand things like the carbon cycle. You need to understand, we already talk about how carbon is produced as a regular thing when we're talking about climate change, but nature itself will actually capture some of that carbon itself and do various things with it. Like every year, it captures a little bit of carbon in the leaves of all of the trees, and you can measure, when I say you, typically science, scientists would measure the amount of carbon in the air, and it goes down every summer because a lot of carbon is captured as leaves in the trees, and then in winter, the rate of carbon in the atmosphere goes up because the leaves are decaying and on the forest floors, because most of the deciduous forests are in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. So again, that doesn't hold true when you flip it around if you're in the southern hemisphere your carbon goes up in winter because all the trees in the north are losing their leaves so nature completely separate from humanity releases co2 and also captures co2 and this was largely in balance until we started digging up a bunch of co2 that was previously captured and re-releasing it into the atmosphere and that is fossil fuels hey that sounds a whole lot like that coal stuff we were talking with the rock doctor about yes and coal is an explicit example of this oh yes so but then when you're talking about carbon sequestration you have to acknowledge the ocean's involvement in all of these cycles and the ocean in case you didn't hear or know is a very very big thing covering most of the earth it is a huge component in this entire cycle and as soon as you start getting the ocean and all of its complex systems involved is there's just so much there's so much there going on it is difficult to say the least to try to condense it down into an episode for this purpose so you're saying that my degree from google isn't good enough to unravel this in 10 minutes no definitely not oh I wonder if any experts out there like Dunning or Kruger would have anything to say about this. Almost certainly. Oh, I have to link to the Dunning-Kruger effect now, don't I? Hey, yeah, probably. Ugh, for listeners, the two-second version of that, because it is a lot more simple. People who don't have a lot of information tend to think they have a lot of information. And people who have lots and lots of information know enough to be uncertain about a thing. Yeah, they, they, ha- they know enough of the framework to know where the gaps are, and they know those gaps are big vast and complicated and eventually if your expertise in any given topic goes up high enough you know enough to get back some of that certainty but never enough to be a hundred percent certain in that field again yeah that's why you hear all these experts talking in mealy-mouthed ways where they're like we think we conjecture we hypothesize that the climate will go up if when maybe considering you know all these words that are like 
maybe. And then we hear people who don't know a damn thing saying, I know for a fact climate change is fake. <sighs> yeah. So all those people suffering from disevidentia are on the wrong side of the Dunning-Kruger effect, making light of this very complex topic that they likely don't know is very complex because they haven't looked at half the maps Mako has shown me today. Yeah. So, oceans. They capture carbon. A lot of carbon. A shitload of carbon. Like two whole bags of charcoal briquettes? Considerably more than that. Whoa, that's a lot of carbon. Yes. More seriously, what can you throw a number out, even though it won't make any sense to us? So I tried looking for a concrete number, and if I kept on looking, I'd probably find one. But the few sources I looked at was actually giving me different numbers, so I was hesitant. to. Do we have a range? Yes. Uh, different sources say between 30 and 45% of all carbon that is emitted is captured by the ocean. Okay, so we're releasing gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. So the ocean is capturing gigatons. Yes. Okay, that's a lot. Quite a bit. That's at least three bags of charcoal. At least. Yes. <laughs> Probably closer to like four or five. <laughs> yes, four or five is closer to billions. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway. Were there any specific topics you want to, or specific factoids you wanted to drop to highlight how complex this was? So, like, I started kind of giving up on trying to talk about it in full when I kept on digging because we know that the pH of the ocean is actually dropping as a result of... pH is the measure of how acidic or basic uh, a liquid is. So the ocean is yes. becoming more acidic. Yes, uh, that's been dropping, and that drop has been happening lately. Uh, when I say lately, I mean like last few decades, coinciding with a lot of our other climate change data. And it's already doing kind of a little bit of damage, but we're more concerned long term. And I started looking up, okay, well, what all marine life is going to be impacted by this? How is that going to impact other ecosystems? Because one thing that really, really likes this acidification and the abundance of all the carbon in the water is seaweed. Seaweed loves it. So that's kind of neat, but... That doesn't make up for all the creatures that'll have thinner shells, all the things that oh. live in environments that don't support seaweed, that are going to get overrun by seaweed. Not just thinner shells. In in some cases, some species, the, their shells are just completely gone. Oh, that's, that's rough. Yeah. And it's just going to get more acidic going forward. At least that's the projection. And if, if that's going to apply to more and more species as it does. Not only that, but the uh, the destruction of coral reefs is also likely to happen. Yep. It's always the coral that's the victim. Yeah. We, we know that stuff, but I was like, I was trying to get more details and like get more relatable specific examples like the ski resort example and, and then just trying to sure up numbers because like, again, the, the sources couldn't agree if it was like 30 or 45 and it just, it became this huge rabbit hole where I'm like trying to connect all these dots. Connecting lots of dots. That does speak to the complexity here. Yeah. There's no way we're going to do it justice in our hour or two long podcast. It just can't be done, right? I would have to spend probably weeks carefully curating all the information and spend an entire episode on it, probably. Wow. Okay. You're welcome to do that if you want. I will fact check or proofread. I don't know. Probably not. Okay. But I think looking at the timeline of climate change will help highlight how a lot of these uncertainties when scientists speak are exaggerated, and how the certain parts we understand are 
obfuscated. <laughs> In the late 70s, scientists put out some not great papers about a long-term cooling trend. Okay, And to the best of my knowledge, we sort of stuck with that notion in through the 80s. And some of these trends exist, but on like centuries-long scales. Okay, So it's not like the sun and its 11-year cycle. It's not like a single volcanic release is going to cause the Earth to cool. No, it's the notion that something is changing you know, maybe in a thousand years. In some huge long amount of time, we expect to be in another Ice Age-like thing if humans don't change something. So papers like that came out. And largely, they seem to be truish or reasonable, or the best of our knowledge at the time, at least. But then, other scientists caring about more day-to-day -day things were like, hey, look, CO2 is increasing right now. We're putting more methane in the atmosphere. That's capturing heat, too. All these things are capturing heat and heating up the planet now. So before those long-term things matter, we're going to melt away all the ice, and it's going to get really hot in here. In here being... Our whole atmosphere. The Earth, yes. Largely in the 80s, people on the side of business or the oil industry or conservatives in general would have just denied climate change existed at all, because they can just point and say those scientists don't agree, why should we believe them? And then they take the side that's convenient for their politics. Okay, in the 90s, the science mostly left the long-term cooling alone, because people were like, hey, this short-term cooling either has better evidence for today, or we just don't care about the long-term cooling because we're not going to get there. Well, largely, this was still ignored because the science hadn't proliferated. It takes a long time for that to happen. But at least some people were coming around to, yeah, maybe, maybe this is, is real. In the 2000s, we largely got to the point where even pretty staunch conservatives were like, yeah, climate change is real, but it's not man-made. Okay, the scientists keep beating drums. They have a big survey where they say 97% of them agree that it is real, it is man-made. And in the 20-teens, the past 10 years or so, conservatives have largely said climate change is real, but not a problem. I even had an argument with a troll on Twitter that when I said that everything within three vertical feet of the ocean, you know, could have water on it, because if the ocean waters rise by three feet, which is a lot, but as much as it might rise by, that, you know, that would really screw up Miami. And then he tried to accuse me of saying that I said Miami was only three feet tall, wasn't even trying to be honest about it. He was clearly, well, not caring about the actual results and uh, being that narcissist that reminds us of the rest of the narcissist prayer. Yeah. Let me connect this for us. Conservative said, I'm getting hyper-political and partisan here. Mm -hmm. But when the Democrats get something really wrong, I will yell at them. We'll get there. I'm sure it'll happen. Okay. They denied climate change existed. They denied it was our fault. And now they're saying it's not so bad. The narcissist prayer is that didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't that bad. And if it was, that's not a big deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. And if I did, you deserved it. Of the six lines of that prayer, we've hit four of them for climate change. The conservatives have said it didn't happen. They said if I did it, it wasn't that bad. We know it's that bad. Scientists are saying it's that bad. They all agree. We know it is a big deal. Literally, we were talking about flooding Miami. This guy just ignored it. You can go back through the disevidential Twitter if you want to see. Not a whole lot there, but there really are people out there who appear to believe this stuff. And then claiming it's not our fault. That's where people are saying this climate change isn't man-made, but it really has to be. We have tons of charts showing this really closely lines up with human industry. We know what our things are putting out. We know the direct causal link. We know why things are changing. We have all this information, and that gets muddled in a complex message because experts aren't confident enough to say this is definitely a problem 
until things start getting really bad. And experts are saying this now. Experts are coming together and doing things like saying, yeah, look, 100% of us agree on this thing. And it's really hard to get that many scientists to agree on anything. Mm-hmm. So I'll go ahead and drop a link to the Narcissist Prayer in the show notes, and you drop some Wikipedia links to these other complex topics in the show notes. Yep. Because we didn't really go too in-depth, because we can't. The oceans are too big to go in-depth. <sighs> it also doesn't help that some sources that quote scientists get very alarmist. That also confuses the message. By and large, scientists are saying this is a problem, this is a catastrophe, this will flood our cities, but then some people, in an attempt to refute climate change, or to deny climate change, are saying, this won't kill all humans. Well, nobody's really saying it's going to kill all humans. Well, when you say, like, it's going to flood all the cities, you're invoking visions of biblical stories, and... And that is because not all scientists are are as good at communicating as Neil deGrasse Tyson. If Neil deGrasse Tyson were telling the story of climate change, way more people would believe it. Probably. So yeah, when a scientist says, yeah, all the cities within three feet of the oceans are going to be flooded, they mean over the next hundred years, one city at a time is going to have to make plans or move. Because there have been human habitations that have just, you know, been erased from the map. Probably didn't involve any casualties because the people got their stuff and moved. Because every year the water came a little closer up and then everyone's basement flooded that one year and they kind of moved out. And then the next year, the you know people a little further inland, their basements flooded. And then eventually where the houses used to be was you know hundreds of feet out into the water. That's what it's going to look like. It's slow, steady, very destructive to our infrastructure, very disruptive to our lives, and will cause a lot of people to move and a lot of wealth to be lost. But it's probably not going to cause human extinction, but it sure as heck will punish the poor. Yeah. So yeah, those are lots of common ways people obfuscate and obstruct and argue this. But all the scientists are agreeing, even if they're not good at making the messaging. Mm -hmm. What were some other things that don't refute climate change? So there's two in particular that I have personal experience with, unfortunately. Uh, I think I know what you're going to bring up. Yeah, you probably do. But uh, one of the first times I ever had a climate change conversation with somebody who denied climate change long time ago, tried to argue with me that climate change is very obviously not accurate, that the globe is not warming, and the Little Ice Age proves it. Wait, so the fact it was colder in the past than it is right now proves that it's not getting warmer? That was the the gist of what they were trying to assert, yes. So to, to restate that, the fact that the Earth is getting warmer proves that the Earth is not getting warmer? Yes. All right, now for the listener... It's me and Mako were staring directly into each other's eyes saying this. We both know and have talked to this person, maybe not the same person, but to a person that believes this and wholeheartedly believes that because A, not A, and it might be hard for you to accept this if you haven't reduced someone's beliefs down to something so critical and so obviously self-contradictory. I personally believe that something on the order of one in three humans, one in three of our fellow Americans, one of our three of our fellow Europeans to our 20% of the audience that is from Europe or Asia. I fully believe that one in three of us believe something wholly and impossibly self-contradictory, like the idea that the Earth is hollow and a sphere, yet flat and a disk. Again, I keep going back to this one example because it's so clear. That doesn't contradict facts. That contradicts math. This guy was a software developer of 20 years, and he was totally wrong. Just numbers would not allow this belief to occur, and he had no problem holding that belief. So when someone tells me that they believe that climate change isn't real because the Earth is warmer now than it used to be, 
and somebody close enough to them to make an emotional connection should try to have that conversation about why they are very, very wrong. Sorry for that getting up on a soapbox, but it felt like the right time. Okay. So I think the the main thing that he was attempting to go for and failing at, mind you, was that he was just trying to argue that there is normal warming and cooling trends that happen. And if there was this hyper long pattern of warming temperatures across the globe, then you know, the little ice age shouldn't be possible. But yeah, I don't. He very obviously didn't really think it through. <laughs> Yep, so many of these things are because people don't think it all the way through. Yep, for context for the, the listeners, the Little Ice Age, it refers to a cooling period that we only have some fuzzy numbers on when it started and ended, but the consensus is that it started around 1300 and ended sometime around 1850, and the global average temperatures dropped about half a degree within this period. So it was only a little ice age, not a big ice age. Yeah, it's a, just a little. But, I mean, that's a global average. Some areas felt more extreme cooling than others, of course, and some things were disrupted, as you might expect from these things. But, I mean, it is just global average temperature dropped half a degree. The current warming trend that we are experiencing... And there is, in, in the Little Ice Age Wikipedia page, there's a nice little infographic that is right near the top. And it shows a very alarmingly steep increase right at the far right side of the infographic. And this infographic shows that compared to the hundreds of years where we had half a degree decrease in average global temperature within just a century, we've started to experience more than a whole degree warming. Yeah, so this graph, it's what a lot of the climate change deniers refer to as the hockey stick. And they try to accuse, they have all sorts of weird ideas about this graph. They say that the the international community of scientists, you know, and they'll pick whichever group they want to discredit. They'll say that, oh, we found some leaked emails that show them fabricating the hockey stick. Uh, and they just treat it derogatorily. So if you hear anyone saying, oh, we debunked the hockey stick, this is what they're talking about. Because when you lay the graph down, it looks kind of like a hockey stick. Yeah, a little bit. I can it's, see it. It's a big flat line for most of history, especially if you get like prehistory from things like ice cores or, or, or sediment cores that we pull up. There are ways to infer temperature from that. And largely, they'll all say what the global average temperature was, and it's slowly adjusted up and down within ranges that are very tiny. And then for the modern era, it skyrockets. And the later we get in the modern era, the more it skyrockets. The temperature's exponentially rising. Now, it's still only exponentially rising an average of a degree or two, which is devastating to natural stuff, but it's not going to kill all humans instantly. We're not all going to catch fire. It's going to level off at some point, but it's going to level off at some point with a new earth, new shipping routes, flooded cities, and many millions of refugees. Yep. <sighs> so, and the other thing, this one's a bit more recent because occurrences of it have, well, largely been more recent. Something happening more recently. Oh. Yeah. How recent could this climate change possibly be? Ten years ago? <laughs> 15 years ago? Now years ago? No. Uh, polar vortex. Now, pretty much anybody that has been in 
North America, particularly in the central states of the United States, has probably heard a thing or two about the polar vortex and even experienced it. Oh, so this is that thing that froze Texas. And... That southernmost state of the central states that really ought not to never freeze. Yeah, yeah, they were very alarmed and very unprepared for the sudden freezing that occurred as a result of the polar vortex. All right, so I'll throw what I know out about this. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding that there's a general cold wind pattern in the Arctic, and yeah. the, the circular vortex of wind mostly does its own thing and stays up there, except occasionally it gets disrupted, and then this wind that's of a below-average level of coldness comes down, mixes with the rest of the air, and occasionally freezes the shit out of everything down here. And the orientation of the mountains the Rockies in particular, is just right to send it straight at Omaha, which is where I'm sitting. Kind of. Okay. You're close. I got it kind of right. Awesome. So the polar vortex is, it's not the name of something that leaks cold air down in through central United States. It's a, a normal phenomenon that is constantly occurring. It is a vortex of cold air that and there's one in the, the North and South Poles, the uh, Arctic Polar Vortex and the Antarctic Polar Vortex. So it's just there all the time? All the time. Okay. As a natural, normal occurring thing. But what's not natural is because this uh, vortex of wind, it interacts with the jet stream and they both kind of keep each other in check. The strength of the polar vortex tends to keep the jet stream uh, like uh, at the right latitudes. Yes, that's the word. It keeps it at the right latitudes and the jet stream does the same thing to the polar vortex. Okay, so the cold, dry air stays up near the Arctic and the more warm, more moist air stays in the jet stream and floats around the mid-latitudes. Yes. Okay. But sometimes, especially as of recently, the jet stream has a, a more erratic path because like the jet stream, it follows a band around, a, you know, a range of latitudes oh, in the Northern anything, Hemisphere. Anything to do with all that cold ice that melted under it and revealed warm seawater? Uh, not under the jet stream itself, but yes, we'll get well, there. Under the polar vortex. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. Uh, the jet stream, it gets a, in a regular path where it spikes northward and then comes back down southward. I mean, overall, it's a... It's, it's an east-west thing. It's not a north-south thing. So you get this irregular perturbation in the path of the jet stream, and that will push warm air up into the Arctic and devastatingly cold air down south. And that's where the, the polar vortex that we experience is coming from. So this is how we can have cruise ships north of Canada and a frozen Texas. Yes. The reason that the jet stream gets that irregular shape is because the polar vortex itself actually weakens at a, a critical time when these things are supposed to be keeping each other in check, and it's weakening because of the mechanism you just described. So it is primarily weakening because of the ice, and I just kind of guessed that. I didn't know that, but that makes a ton of sense because ice has a low albedo. It has a, a, a high reflectivity. It captures very little sunlight and reflects most light back off into space. Mm-hmm. Whereas seawater is relatively dark and captures most of the light and warms up, so wind traveling over it, this is what I get for sitting near all those weather scientists back at the Air Force Weather Center. Mm -hmm. So I didn't write any of the math for this. I, I wrote software that tested the user interfaces over there, but I talked to a bunch of those guys and they are really smart. But when wind travels over something, it picks up some of the temperature in that thing and drops off some of its own temperature. And it's kind of intuitive when you think about it. Yes. And because the melting ice sheet isn't perfectly round, 
lots of the polar vortex is now exposed to the warmer sea air rather than the cold ice air and warms up and the jet stream goes north and gets colder air and it all gets mixed up and yeah the polar vortex gets weaker so the jet stream pushes further north and then carries the cold air down and then uh, texas loses power and then we have a thing that the Europeans call a bomb cyclone centered on Wahoo, Nebraska, and all of Nebraska freezes and we need to rebuild Interstate 80. Okay. Yep. That's pretty much it. Yep. That makes perfect sense. The thing that some people are trying to argue proves that global warming isn't actually happening because, oh, it's cold. Well, actually, that's happening because these are vast, complex systems. <laughs> you're, you're shaking violently over there. You're just, you're, you're turning red. You're just so angry at these people denying these basic things. Well, I wouldn't describe them as basic, but like... Oh, you're right, you're right. Basic's the wrong word. But this notion that we should trust experts who've spent like years studying and understanding and analyzing. And it's like, but I'm holding a snowball, so global warming's not real. Yeah. These oh, are... God, I have to include a video from that one senator or congressman who brought a snowball into the into the, the fucking Congress. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no climate change. Look, I got a snowball from outside. I'm an idiot. Yeah, that shit doesn't prove anything. Yeah, and that's why a lot of people prefer the term climate change over global warming, because it at least somewhat addresses the fact that these are very complicated systems, and they're going to have knockdown effects on other things and produce results that you would not readily expect. Like, yes, sometimes the globe getting warmer means parts of the globe get colder. It shouldn't be that difficult to understand that this stuff is complex. And when you have millions and millions of square miles of a thing, it's not all going to behave homogeneously. It's not all going to change the same. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. So some other things that we might hear from climate change deniers. One I hear a lot is the sun cycle. There's always claims that, oh, the sun is currently in a local maximum or something. Yeah, it does have a cycle. It does have a maximum and a minimum. Yeah, it's only an 11-year cycle, though, and we've got data going back more than 11 years. Yeah. So those excuses are bad excuses, not based in reality. Yeah, the this circumstance is accurate, but its connection to climate change is nonsensical. Yeah, and NASA's page on this, and if you don't think NASA's right on this, then you are not thinking clearly. You do not know more than NASA. NASA is not some evil conspiracy If you don't trust NASA on the sun, you have some problems. Mm -hmm. If you want to discredit them, produce evidence, and then other people will believe you. Don't just assert this stuff. Please don't. I've had that argument a ton with people recently, too. Flat earthers. Had a big, long argument about flat earth with somebody saying they wouldn't trust any picture from NASA because NASA doctored them. Citing no evidence, of course. Anyway, NASA's got this great page. I went through and read most of it. There's tons of details, and they link to other things inside NASA and cite some external sources. It's really good. Uh, the other thing I brought up, again, I'm citing NASA, is uh, about scientists disagreeing. People love to claim that scientists disagree. There's no consensus on this. The only time anyone ever does this is when there is a consensus. Okay. <laughs> It does. Give me one example where scientists strongly disagreed about a thing and a denier even existed, right? It, it doesn't happen, right? It's when society is trying to move on and society has agreed on a thing based on the evidence usually and somebody who wants their side heard says, no, teach the debate, teach the argument. That's how people are training at creationism taught in schools. They don't say, look at my facts. They say, uh teach both sides because the argument is important because they know their side has no basis in fact so they appeal to anything else oh i think it might be a bit of a stretch to say they know there's no basis in fact but i'll phrase that any argument they've ever put forward based in fact hasn't worked for them 
because everyone else around them knows it's not there taste and fact. There you go. Okay, so uh, I cite NASA here. The, the title of it, Do Scientists Agree on Climate Change? Yes, comma, rest of sentence. NASA in turn cites eight sources and then has more reading. They have at least three other links on their own page to other documents inside NASA. That direct climate page isn't super interesting because it just says everyone agrees and then like a little paragraph on it but there's tons of things on climate change how climate impacts things how climate impacts when they can launch ships eight different well-written sourced things that are great and then i have a wikipedia link to the surveys of scientists views on climate change every year it gets higher and higher and in 2019 that survey said 100 percent of scientists agree on this so yeah yeah that's a uh, pretty direct Yep. I encourage people to take a look at both. Even just a quick glance at the Wikipedia page is like, oh, well, if if people are going to be lying about this, I don't even know where to go with that thought. It's just any argument against, any argument saying scientists don't agree is a total non-starter based on evidence. Yep. And I have no clue how to rebut this one, you know, short of like dropping all of the temperature data we've ever put out there. But I've had people try to tell me that the temperature data isn't real or the uh, IPCC, or the International Panel on Climate Change, that group, that all their numbers are false and fake. Just people generally appealing to conspiracy and saying, oh, you can't trust them, they're lying with all the numbers. No, they don't produce anything to suggest why or how they're lying about the numbers. And <sighs> ignoring that all the independent institutions that have collected data largely agree. Yeah, we have so many lines of corroborating evidence, and the various sources we've cited this show will confirm it. We have schools. You know, actually, I will. I'll go back and find the, the climate record from, I think, the University of Berlin. They have temperature readings going back to 1701, where they just pull out a thermometer and take a temperature reading every day. That's kind of amazing. And yep. it agrees. Then the people who dig stuff out of the ground and measure various ways to get the temperature from that, their numbers agree. And then just everybody doing this a different way, they all agree because that's what's happening. So just in order even for there to be a rigging of this, there has to be a rigging of every thermometer? It has to be a conspiracy so large. Yeah, it's a conspiracy theory. Just ignore it and move on. Yep. If you know someone believing that, step one, make an emotional connection with them. Find common ground. So that'll be step two, find common ground. And then slowly work in with real evidence and get them to do things like trusting experts. This is why we have to have many of these conversations. There's no way you can just link them to our podcast and expect them to believe it. They'll just reject us. Of course, we'll be liberal shills for the climate change scientists. That's what they'll think. Yep. Or that we're manipulated or... George Soros or is paying us. Ugh. Where's my check? Thanks for the new gaming PC, Soros. I didn't get it because I ordered a Dell. Damn. <laughs> I should have bought ABK Customs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would have got it then. Y yes. All right, back to, back to being serious. Yeah. There's only so many things that we can touch on when climate change deniers will say something. It is trivially easy to make an excuse for why the oil industry has been correct the past 40 years and why scientists have been wrong. So we need just other information. Do you have any other suggestions for what people might do or read <laughs> or view or watch? Uh, while I was doing my research with other topics and you know, trying to find things that discussed just narrow facets of climate change, I, of course, I included climate change in my search criteria to try to hopefully narrow things down, but a few things popped up in the searches. And I did find a couple of websites from uh, government agencies that do have some good overview information about the effects of 
climate change. There is one from NASA. That's at climate.nasa.gov slash effects, which, uh, you know, pretty self-explanatory URL. And that's a, a decent website for that kind of information. But I also found a page on the CDC website that, in my opinion, goes into a bit better detail, keeping things high level, but talking about like regional effects, you know, food security, how climate change even affects the spread of diseases. And they got some good information there for just high level overview on these things. If you want to get a little bit of a better understanding of the effects of climate change. But last episode, we learned that we were out evolving malaria. Surely we'll out evolve climate change. <sighs> one specific population out evolved malaria. And Maybe one specific population will out-evolve climate change, but, you know, for the rest of us... I like how you just presume it won't be you and me out-evolving climate change. Yeah, probably not, but, you know, one can hope. Uh, it's sort of how evolution works. The vast majority of things die, and the rest got lucky and live on. They're slightly better. They were born slightly better. Yep. So we will freeze or burn, and not being immune to fire or ice... Maybe, actually, I'm pretty fat. I'm probably immune to ice. I'm feeling pretty good about this going, like, deeper into the polar vortex thing. That would work out for me, I think. Okay, good luck. When the last bit of polar wind came down, I was just shoveling, man. I don't, don't even, I don't even have a snowblower. I was shoveling the whole time. Yeah, I was shoveling too, because we don't have a snowblower. Thank you. I appreciate the help. I guess that's all we have, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Was that too on the nose? Oh, a little bit. I'll edit it and put some subtlety in there. Don't forget about our sponsor, ABK Customs. If you need a computer, go to abk-customs.com. That is abk-customz.com to speak to an expert to get the computer you need. Don't forget to give them code evidence for a 10% discount on your next computer. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters at the Evidence Investigator level or higher, including Jared, Ducktape, Keldar, and Lazori78. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc. Intro music was slow by Pidex, used with permission. So what are the limits on, on um, weapons in America? Because you see oh. that people get hold of some military surplus stuff and you think, yeah, um, it doesn't seem like there's any limits at all. Can you just buy hand grenades? Could you In Oklahoma. Even though if it's difficult if it's difficult to source them, they're still technically legal. So Congress here has tried to ban certain things that look assault weapon-esque. Like, I remember there was a ban on bump stocks. There's caps on yeah. magazine size. We all became experts with the international news after the uh, Las Vegas shooting. We learned about bump stocks. Yeah. And that told me that they had limits on automatic weapons, fully automatic. Yeah. But as soon as you switch it from then fully auto... I'm sorry. There's no caliber limitation on weapons, is there? Nope. Or is it just that not many people want to buy a... I can drive down to a Bass Pro Shop here in town in Omaha and pick up a 50 caliber rifle. Yeah, and he knows that because he literally saw one on the wall. And I, I remember, picked it up. I'm in Europe, so 50 caliber means nothing to oh, me at all. We're... It sounds big. That's the threshold where weapons start being uh, construed as anti-material instead of anti-personnel because they just do way too much devastating damage if it hits a body. 
Okay, so right, a caliber is yeah, it's for shooting down um, uh, things like ships and planes and stuff, <laughs> rather than just so, shooting at a person. So caliber is one inch. A hundred caliber would be one inch. So moving that from freedom there you go. units so it's half an inch. over to sense sensible units, over to science units, that's about uh, twelve or four, twelve, thirteen, fourteen millimeters. The bullet is in diameter. Yeah, that's quite big. So NATO uses yeah. uh, the five five six round. That's 5.56 millimeters in diameter. Yeah. So I, the, the bullets I've ever seen were like a few millimeters. Yeah. So these are gigantic. I mean, I've, I've fired guns a very small number of times in my life. And uh, yeah, I know nothing about guns, but I do know that Americans have access to almost everything that's been invented. As far as I could see, if you could get a railway track, you could buy a howitzer and <laughs> then go looking for shells to put in right, no kidding here in town there is a community of people who build and fire black powder cannons oh we have those as well okay. the, the battle reenactors yeah that, that's one of those bizarre anomalies that we do actually have i'm not sure they can have a projectile but they can make it go bang yeah we can have projectiles here okay yep. i think the most impressive thing i ever saw was uh, a, someone built a ballista you know these things <laughs> where you have a, a dirty great big count a counterweight and a sling that would be a trebuchet. And they loaded it up with this uh it's trebuchet, maybe. Yeah. Um, they loaded it up with a rock that it took several people to lift. This was a, a medieval castle and they they set up a wall and this thing flung this stone at an astonishing speed and height. And then, uh, yeah, it knocked down the wall. So even medieval stuff is quite impressive. When I went to run an errand just yesterday, I saw a neighbor of ours when we were leaving the neighborhood. They had a, uh, a human height trebuchet out in their driveway. It was powered by oh, a right. band that makes it a catapult. Was it? Yeah. It was about the size where it could hold a soda can, and it was next to a sign labeled Party Bus. So I think they were launching beers at each other, like cans of beer is what I think maybe. it was about. Ah. No, the, the assembly looked very trebuchet-like to me, not catapult, but maybe. Yeah, one, one does have to get one's medieval weapon terminology correct. <laughs> uh, sorry to geek out on that. I read so many uh, American novels and they, they wax lyrical about the details of guns and all of it is completely unfamiliar to me. But the more you read, the more you pick up. If you want to hear our stance on gun safety, I believe our episode five of the podcast is a great place to listen to it. We tackle nine different gun myths and we, we spent a ton of time researching that one. Excellent. Good work. <sighs> uh, the TLDR is that they're not safe. <laughs> Yeah, who knew, given that they were perfectly designed to kill people? I mean, we have a gun problem, but it's largely on the criminal side, which is they can't get hold of them. So I hear that guns are so scarce that they they can't even obtain replicas. What they do is they rent a replica for a bank job, and there's you know a high rate per hour for renting a replica pistol. And I thought, this is a sign of success. It should be trumpeting the growth in the hourly rate of renting a non-dangerous weapon. But then everybody discovers knives, and knives do a good job too. We actually tackled that one as one of our myths. The amount of gun violence decrease is proportional, but not matching the amount of knife violence increase after new gun after new gun legislation clamps down on it. And we saw that across a couple countries, and I think we highlighted knife crimes in London. It was like for every three gun crimes prevented, there was an extra one knife crime, something like that. Okay, so they've actually done studies on this. Oh yeah, there's there's. So as I say, um, it's quite funny when you hear people talking about the the, um, the knife death crisis in London. I mean, I live in central London and I know it happens because I see it on the news, but 
it's very much a tiny subset of society and in its its gang culture in certain areas and it's mostly drug related as i understand it um you know it is a major problem we absolutely have to take it seriously but people people don't walk around worrying that they're going to get stabbed in no, most normal times it's a bit like in america where we read about the vast scale of gun death but most americans don't walk around fearing that someone's going to pull a gun on so them so hang on maybe in a few bits a few bits of a few cities i know it's very very bad it has been less than 2 months since we had a since we had a just broad daylight homicide with a gun at a mall and this is the mall closest to my house I live in a part of Omaha oh, right. called West Omaha, and just about two miles from my house is a thing called West Roads Mall. There's a guy standing just in the mall. Somebody walked up to him, shot him twice, and walked out. Ugh. And there was actually another shooting at the exact, well, not the exact same location. It was in the mall, but a different place in the mall one month prior to that. Ugh. Okay, well, we're in a city big enough so that um, stabbings happen within a couple of miles of my house Goodness. on a regular basis. Yeah, but London's got like four million people, doesn't it? Exactly. You, you look at how many people live within that yeah. radius, and it's not so much the distance away from you, it's how many people between you and that happening. Yeah, Omaha is one-tenth the size of London. We're like 400,000 people. Right. And if you then look at the whole so metro... a degree more shocking when something bad happens. Yeah. Ugh. And even if you count all of our suburbs, right? If you get everybody around Omaha, there's like one million people. Yeah, I believe we're knocking on the door of 10 million now, depending on how far out you draw the boundary. It feels like a normal city because it's the only one I've ever grown up in. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in smaller and bigger places than Omaha. Kind of gotten comfortable here. I always thought of Heathrow as a normal-sized airport. And then I went to visit uh, Luxembourg, which has one runway, one terminal, one everything. And then I got to work in Oman, where a runway was uh, a flatter bit of the desert. <laughs> and occasionally airplanes land and burst a tyre, and then they're out of action for a week because someone has to drive a tyre in from the coast. Yeah, by most objective metrics, Heathrow is definitely in like the top three largest airports in yeah. the world but it, was, but it was the one i flew from most of the time i went anywhere so i just thought this is an airport and that <laughs> you, your kid's brain says normality is what i've seen yeah it's just that's one of the the weirdest places to use as a basis for comparison because just about anywhere you go it's going to be a, a downgrade yeah I think, there's, uh, I think it's the biggest international airport in the world, or it was. I think we've lost that a few years ago because of NIMBY purposes. We were unable to expand it. Is it back to Atlanta? And other parts of the world have... No, never mind. I think you you win all the ones for internal flights, or, or that include internal flights, but we're wherever we go has to be abroad or else you're, you don't have enough space to take off and land again. Well, Heathrow, from what I understand about Heathrow, they are uh, dominantly funded by, by corporate interests, whereas most airports are actually controlled by municipalities. And so it leans very heavily on getting the maximum dollar for all the different fees for everything. And yes. for that exact reason, they favor really long haul flights. Right. So they don't really do short range stuff very much. Yeah. I think it's the, the cost of landings and takeoffs that's prohibitive for many of the uh, of the short hops because you can't charge enough on the ticket to pay the landing fees. Yeah. But we've got four other London airports, so there's no shortage. And they keep defining airports ever further out as London something. Mm -hmm. So we have to build high-speed train to get to the so-called London airport as it, as it keeps expanding the radius further and further. 